Batman. Good luck, Harry Potter. Well, cover me with eggs and flour and bake me for 40 minutes. Hello, and welcome to Scream Masters with me, Bav. Ah, me, Fluff. And today, somehow, we're going to try and record a podcast covering the work of Christopher Nolan. But first, let's do the admin stuff and uh, see how everyone is. So, welcome back, everyone. Uh, to give you a little datey, timey check, it is the April the 8th for us here as we record today. So we are full into lockdown at the minute, so obviously we are not together. We are doing this remotely uh, on the other end. So I'm hoping that if I stop and leave a pause like this... That Fluffy oh, won't jump in, oh, well, and, then, yeah, yeah. and then we. So th there you go, ladies and gentlemen. The chemistry <laughs> remains. We may not be able to see each other, but the chemistry is there. So yeah, assume if I'm leaving a point, if I'm leaving a pause, it's for you to make a point if you wish. <laughs> so and vice versa. That's Obviously. fine. You you interject and you cut over the middle of the time. It's fine. Well, I'm used to that. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, so. <laughs> Before we, I, I do all the links and stuff, I would, of course, like to turn to some apt words okay, today. Please, please make it appropriate. I mean, given the current Today, climate... I am going... I know, I know. We've, we've had R. Kelly. We've had mm -hmm. making light of coronavirus because at the time we recorded that, it was all, you know, sort of just tiny bit kicking off. So, yeah, I'm, no, I'm, I'm doing away with all that. We're not, we're mm -hmm. not going... We're not going political, we're not going we satirical, we not doing anything it, like that. So, today I would like to turn to the words of Tenacious D and say, Dude, I totally miss you. <laughs> I really fucking miss you. I'm all yeah. alone, all the time, all the time. Okay, you know what? I approve of that one. G yeah, yeah, there that, you go. Uh, I well, given given I've got my old school lighter, which still has a TFMYD on there. So, of course, uh, of course. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. No, I like that one. That That's the first one that I actually was brought a smile to my face. So yeah, I, di I didn't hear audible eye rolling this time. <laughs> it's good. Oh, police car just drove past. Who are they after? Um, I need to stop looking out my window. That's a problem here. Uh, so, yes, let's turn to the admin and do the links then. Uh, so, hello, everyone. If you're listening to us, uh, this will probably all just be on podcast format. I think, I doubt we will put this on YouTube. But if you want to go and check out the YouTube and see previous episodes and things like that, uh, the link is bit dot, <coughs> excuse me, the link is bit dot ly forward slash bite back yt. Um, if you would like to donate to us, obviously we understand these are hard times, brother, hard times. But, um, if you would like to, you can do so over at bit.ly forward slash bite back Patreon with tiers at 7, 11 and $13. Thank you very much. See, it worked that time. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and just remember that the bite is spelt like a computer bite, not a food bite. And all of this information, including the link for Google Podcasts now, as we are live on Google Podcasts finally, uh, can be found in a pinned note, a pinned post at the top of the Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash the Screen Masters. Uh, anything to add to that? I think, I think that's it, isn't it? No, I think that's it. That. Yeah, I'm not going to bother yeah. pushing monetary stuff at the minute because everyone's, like I say, hard times, brother, hard times. Hard times, brother. Um, so, yes. Would you like to discuss anything, or should we just crack straight into the main? Uh, well, we do usually go over what we've been watching, so let's just uh, 
So go on, then. I'll tell you what, yeah. I'll start just because I've yeah. got a couple that I've watched that I think you mentioned last time we met. Okay, sure. So I it. will just touch on those. No, just one. Um, so, yes, yeah, since we last met, I've watched Jumanji, the ah, next okay, level. Yeah. Um, absolutely, totally see what you mean. Uh, Aquafina, if that's how you say it. I can't mm-hmm. decide because it's A W K WAF inner. So sure. it's either Aquafina or Aquafina. I'm not sure. She is incredible, and her Danny DeVito was just something else. <laughs> that made me laugh so much. It was insane. Um, Jumanji, the next level. So, yeah, Aquafina um, is is incredible, like you say, when she's doing her Danny DeVito bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, essentially Jewish granddad, I think it, it, it is the sort of uh, what she's going for. Um, I thought The Rock was really good at it when he first starts, but she just takes it to a whole nother level. Um uh, and as well as you pointed out, Kevin Hart, I, I can handle Kevin Hart in these films. I don't know why I can't handle him normally, but in these films, I really enjoy him and, and I find him very entertaining. He was a bit more sedated, I suppose, in this one because he's playing Danny Glover. Yes, he's a lot yes, less absolutely. Uh, 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 kind yeah, of a, yeah I guess Kevin that's Hart. it. I guess you're right. That's why, because he's not playing his normal Kevin Hart character. Mm. He's always playing someone else. Um, I was incredibly surprised that it managed to pull on the heartstrings again i wasn't Mm. expecting that there was some real emotional beats there and i didn't yeah i didn't see them coming at all uh but you know well done and fair play and you know what you're absolutely right i'm in for a sequel actually seeing the setup at the end it made me realize oh hang on yeah we haven't seen that like we've seen it We've technically seen it before, but we've not seen it before with these characters. No. no. So actually, so, yeah, all right, that's new ground. I, I'm interested, actually. I'm, I'm in. Jumanji and, in the real world, yeah. which is based on the original, and we've obviously been skirting around the game, but not the game impact in the real world. So yeah. ending on that, I think, is a logical conclusion to this whole process as well. So I think it'd be, uh, I think it'd be enjoyable. And again wondering how the characters you know uh the rock and kevin hart and karen gillen and and people like that how their characters are going to portray and interact in this live well that's uh, the thing isn't it because my thought was as well so that would that would be intriguing to see because yeah my thought is it would be interesting to see you know the kids well we'd get a film based around the kids yeah because the kids would be the main actors in it rather than the rock doing an impersonation of that kid but then, like you say, wait, well, okay, so what do you do with the big names? Because, yeah, you're not going to get that sort of budget off just the kids without The Rock and Karen Gillan and Kevin Hart and Jack Black. So you've got to have them in in some way. So then, actually, it might be interesting because we'd get to see their characters. When interacting with... Because we, we don't know yeah, what yeah, The yeah. Rock's character is, do we? No. We've seen The Rock play a geeky nerd, and then we've seen him play Danny DeVito. And then back to the geeky nerd again. We haven't seen what Smolder Bravestone's actual character is, and I would assume mm-hmm. it's just going to be a, you know, an action adventure trope like Indiana Jones. But that's fine. But at least then it would give you a different character to play with. So yeah, I, I'm interested in that. I think you're right. Um, but yeah, that, that was the only one I wanted to mention. I've, I've, I've watched another one that's worth mentioning, but maybe we'll do that in the next uh, in the next recording. Sure. Yeah. No I'll worries. hand it back to you now. Uh, so yeah, no, I've watched a couple of things in. Uh in the period off uh because it's been a little bit easier to watch some stuff uh but i i mean the the one that i mentioned previously that i was watching which i did finish which was uh el chapo um which i really enjoyed actually it was very different to the narcos format that 
is picked up by Netflix and, and has done Narcos and Narcos Mexico. It is a very different format to that, uh, different shooting style. It does look to be heavily uh, Mexican financed and produced, etc. I think it's still a Netflix original. Uh, very interesting uh, in terms of my informative period of El Chapo itself. I didn't know as much about him as... Uh, as well as other ones going into it, like a little bit more um, about um, Pablo Escobar uh, mm, as a result mm. of uh, watching Entourage way back when, yeah, uh, yeah, because course. they discuss him all the time. So it was yeah, well, they curious. made so, Medellin, didn't they? Which was yeah, his, exactly, which yes. was a film based around him. Exactly. So I was a bit more intrigued about that. So I knew a little bit more about him going into Narcos, not knowing as much about El Chapo. The series itself was very enjoyable. Um, I do recommend it for anybody who's kind of enjoyed say the sopranos oddly enough i it, it had very soprano-esque vibes at times mm. uh dealing with el chapo his family political uh, ramifications uh, it, it shows how corrupt uh, the mexican government is it shows how corrupt the dea is because uh, they have dealings with el chapo throughout the majority of his drug career um so it's very intriguing um as another uh, i'm guessing fictional character who plays a politician who's kind of on the up and up uh, can, called uh, Conrado Sol. And he's a very intriguing character as well. I think completely fictional in, in the scope of this TV program. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. You know, it's, it's one of those ones where sometimes it's nice to watch some of the international stuff that they do. Uh, it's, it, you know, don't always watch the American stuff or the UK stuff. It's nice to watch some of the international. So mm. I'm quite glad I watched that. Uh, and the only other thing I will uh, mention of note uh, was Onward. Um, which oh I yes, I haven't seen really that. Yeah, enjoyed. I enjoyed. Um, so I'll, I'll again, I'll defer judgment and, and discussions on that as you've not watched it. You'll probably see it from uh, a different perspective, obviously with, with the kids and things like that. Uh, but yeah, I will certainly talk in. So in, I've uh, heard on this one. is probably the first Pixar in a while that I've not heard resoundingly positive, amazing things. Not that it's a bad film, mm. but I haven't heard its praises being sung quite as loudly. I think because and I think a lot of the released... reviews have sort of said that the beginning part, the sort of the first half, is a bit draggish mm. until it sort of sort of kicks into gear midway through, yeah. and then you're hooked. But like I say, I don't know. This is just what I've heard, so I am. I, I will yeah. see. I think uh, because of ongoing crises of of, of the world, etc. As a result, this obviously got pulled. From cinema slates, it's probably going to end up on Disney Plus a lot sooner, etc., uh, etc. Yeah. Et uh, it's obviously up online and things like that. So I think that may have hindered its overall performance and critical review because it's not, you know, out there at the moment. There's there's other more prioritizing things going on. Yeah. That said, I think it is very good. Uh, the bromance between Chris Pratt and Tom Holland is is very enjoyable. I think those two get on very very well. Uh, mm -hmm. Julia uh, Louise Dreyfus as well is is their mother, very strong character as well. Um, so there's a good other number of people. Um, will this, you know, be, be part of the Pixar discussion at some point? We'll we'll have. I'm sure it will. But for now, I shall we'll say no more because I know that uh, you've not watched it, and I don't want to ruin that for you. Okay, no worries. Well, I shall endeavour to watch it before we uh, before we record our next episode. No, oh, wonderful. Um, okay. Well, so yes, today. Uh, we're going to have a look at the work of, uh, I don't know, I was thinking about this this morning. I think he might possibly be my favourite director currently working, mm. I think. Um, I can't... It's consistency. Quite. That's it. That's what it comes down to. And it's not, you know, um, 
you know, Michael Bay's consistent. But, um, <laughs> in a whole different capacity. Exactly, yeah. in a whole different way. Um, but I, yeah, I, I very much like Nolan. I, I, I like what he tries to do. I like that nothing's ever surface. Nothing's ever simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, you know, simple makes it sound as if he overcomplicates things, but nothing is ever surface level. It may look like it is, but actually something else entirely different is going on. Um, an example, as you'll see as we go through, uh, will come up in Insomnia. Um, it, on the surface, looks like a very simple, basic whodunit cop thriller, you know, trying to hunt down the bad guy. Personally, I don't think that's what the film's about, but that is what it presents itself as on the surface. Um so let's have a look through his slate. What I've done is taken all of his uh, main feature films. He has done some shorts and stuff, which are practically impossible to get hold of. Uh, so I've discounted those. And of course, we've already covered the Dark Knight trilogy as its own thing. So we've left that out entirely. So taking all of that out, what we end up with is his first film in 1998 called Following. Uh, Memento from 2000, which is really, I, would, I think, where a lot of people first got his name. Yeah, his notoriety began there. Exactly. Uh, Insomnia from 2002. The Prestige from 2006. Inception from 2010. Interstellar from 2014. And Dunkirk from 2017. And again, I'm sure this won't work now, but the whole point was to tie all this into the release of Tenet in 2020. Uh but I decided I didn't want to bin another episode to wait till later in the year. <laughs> We're just going to be packing them all. Exactly. I just have nothing. We've got nothing to do. I've decided next month I'm going, you know, we're not tying it. I'm not trying to tie it into the release of anything next month. So I don't give a crap what happens when we record. But uh, yes, so that's what we're, we were aiming for. I tell you what, though, I would just like to um, read the the potential description because so little is known about tenant mm. uh tenant even though uh the expected release is july 2020 in the uk according to imdb i'm gonna go ahead and get something along I, the lines of january 2021 quite i i wouldn't time. be surprised but here is what it currently reads as the little synopsis for tenant an action epic revolving around international espionage time travel and evolution Possibly about a man trying to prevent World War Three through time travel and rebirth. Sure. So, uh, <laughs> like, what? Yeah. I like the fact it says possibly, because even they don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Not, yeah. not he's not letting us know. With it's like Inception, though. You watch the trailers for Inception and we're like, what the fuck is this? Mm-hmm. This looks weird. Mm. Um, but I would argue it made sense in the end. Yeah. So, um, the only one of these films that I have not watched at all is the f- is following from 1998. I really struggled to find a copy of that, including through um, less uh, legal means, shall we say, sure. um, trying to find it. I still really struggled to find it. So um, apologies for not talking about that one, everyone. Uh, if you've seen it, fantastic. I'd love to know what it's like. Um, it is, uh, please it let is, us know is... through the usual channel, screenmasters yeah. at bitebackmedia.co.uk or on the Facebook page. Uh, it is certainly one that I remember watching many, many, many years ago now. But as you say, that's a good long while ago. Uh, mm. I think this was perhaps after Prestige had come out, uh, knowing Nolan from Memento. And I was like, mm, OK, I'm curious to see what else he's done. I don't think it was anything to write home about. I don't think it suddenly went, oh, uh, you know, this is going to break the mold. In terms of a debut film, 
in that respect. Well, I, I do know was, that you know, it had a load of can stuff though. Mm. The post, you know, it lot, won a lot of you know Sundance can all that sort of mm -hmm. Toronto Film Festival, whatever it might have been, because the poster for it has lots of the little, you know, the little rosettes on like Best yeah. Picture, the Toronto Film, you know, so it was well received or whatever. But yeah, I'm afraid I don't know. So my plan for this is to sort of take us through film by film, looking at what he's doing, how his star's developing as he goes along, and uh, then potentially choose a favourite in conclusion if if we can. Mm -hmm. uh, so, some questions, some things that I've noticed over the top. So I'll start start with my introduction. So, a question that I've been debating with myself, um, and, and I'd be interested to know your thoughts on, is, is he an auteur? Now, again, for those that don't know what this is, because you are, we are delving into the realms of sort of film theory at this point. Um, uh, the the question of whether he's an auteur comes from uh, auteur theory, mm -hmm. which I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, because you did far more on the film sure. uh, theory side of things, but is uh, the theory that suggests that a a director, uh, the director's films can be uh, identified very quickly just by watching a small snippet of them. Mm -hmm. uh, that you would know, oh, this is a Christopher Nolan film. Oh, sure. this is a Darren Aronofsky I've mentioned before as a, a, who I see as an auteur. Um, you know, they, they have a very specific maybe style, uh, look of the thing maybe, but you can tell it's them. Would you say that's a yeah, fair in a crux, explanation? Yeah, in a crux, in a, in a very easy way of explaining. Yes, uh, other people like your Tarantinos, your Kevin Smiths, yes, people of course, like Tarantino that, Smith, they yeah, do yeah. have a particular style to what mm. they're doing. Uh, producing, filming, etc. As you say, there is an evolution to each one of them because they don't necessarily stick to the same formula unless you're Michael Bay and your shit. Um, Quite, again, I, you know what, I've put a note here saying Michael Bay could be an auteur technically in, by in, that in theory, theory yeah. because yeah. I can I can stick a film on and I know within a minute whether it's a Michael Bay <laughs> yeah, film or not. Or, you know, thing, I would yeah. know within a minute if it was a Michael Bay film, put it that way. Exactly. Uh, James Cameron in the same vein. A, a yeah. lot of directors could, could fall under this category. And while Nolan has progressed, he has changed his visual styles, etc. But there are certain, um, certain examples and certain elements to his films that repeat again and again and again. Yeah. Just like with J.J. Abrams and Lens Flare. Uh, yeah. You know, that's his little thing. Yeah. to indicate, oh, this is a J.J. Abrams film. Exactly. Again, we have similar Nolan-isms, perhaps, is, is the best mm -hmm. way of describing them. Absolutely. So, yes, in that respect, yes. Would I mean, again, uh, you know, talking about Darren Aronofsky, as we have before being an auteur, you know, if you take something like The Fountain, which is an incredibly high-concept, uh, space- and time-based thing, uh, you, you could compare that to Interstellar, which is similarly a, a very high-concept um you know, uh, space and time mind-bending uh, film. But I feel that Interstellar does absolutely everything it can to try and tell the audience what's going on and explain what they need to understand in order for this to go. My feeling with someone like Aronofsky is that he, he is an auteur that, that can distance the viewer because he isn't interested necessarily in explaining the piece of Mayan culture that has influenced this particular scene or which passage from the Kabbalah has has influenced this, that and the other. Whereas Nolan does go, right, well, this is all based on science, so I'm just going to explain the science of it to you, and then hopefully you'll be able to fit your head around that. Now, fair enough, 
again, when we get to interstellar, we're dealing with five dimensional beings across uh, vast stretches of space and time. So I get it if some people can't wrap their head around the whole thing, but I, I see him as, as, as an auteur that wants to bring you into his world rather than one that wants to show you his world, if that makes sense. That's what I'm, I think that's the point I'm trying to make. Sure. I feel some auteurs, I feel like I'm stood behind a fence watching them show me what they want to show me. Whereas I feel that, that Nolan opens the gate and lets me come in and join him in his world. Sure, yeah, yeah. I understand that, yeah. Um, again, uh, yeah, he He's very keen, I've noticed this time around as well, watching some of this stuff. There's a few times where he likes to start the film with something completely out of context that only becomes fitted into context in the third act. Watch out for that, because I'll point it out as we go okay, through. Okay, yeah, no, no, I'm sure you'll point out the uh, examples. Um, I've got three examples so far, but that I, I do think there might be more, but I can't think of them off the top of my head, because uh, there are a couple that I haven't watched again recently. No, actually, I've watched enough of them. No, it's these three, then. But he does like doing it. Um, something I didn't realise until I looked up all this stuff, he has never directed something that he did not at least co-write. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I was well aware never. of that. And yep. you know, mostly it's his brother, isn't it? It's, uh, yes, Chris, sure. uh, Christopher and Jonathan write write yep. the stuff, and then Chris tends to direct them. The only example I could find where it's someone from outside is the Dark Knight trilogy, where David S. Goya wrote co-wrote the story for all three, mm. but then the scripts and the screenplays for all of them were written by Christopher and Jonathan. But that's the only time sort of an outsider has come in. But how how many how many Hollywood uh, directors? Um, you know, producing these massive budget films. Because let's face it, since Inception, he's been doing incredibly large budget movies. Mm. Uh, Hollywood blockbusters, for want of a better word. I mean, I don't count them the same as a standard blockbuster because I, I feel they've got more depth to them. But there's, you know, he's got a lot of uh, a lot of time and money there he's been given. How many other directors have been given that freedom as they've gone through? Normally... You find even the best auteurs have had to go off and do, you know, that Hollywood production that they had no control over, but they had to do it to get their foot in the door to be able to then make the passion project afterwards and go back to writing, directing themselves. Well, I can't I mean, think of a lot of others. We've discussed a few people uh, re- recently, you know, like your M. Night Shyamalan's, who uh, Hollywood just seems to keep giving a shit ton of money for to mm. produce really terrible films but even then he has directed own... something that he didn't write yes yeah, very true but as in the majority of the stuff that he has done has been his own stuff it's not oh, okay you can now do your own film but you've got to kind of do this thing it, it doesn't appear to have been that way it's just no. okay just line up give him a shitload of money he makes a terrible film and we move on yeah. um yeah. you know tarantino again is given a decent budget but he's not given hundreds of millions because that's mm-hmm. just not his style that's just not who he is yeah again he all of his films and things like that are ones which he'll do the scripts for and stuff so yes uh there, there are very few actors uh, sorry actors directors now that have that flexibility it's the confidence that people have in nolan mm-hmm. um to, to go you know what we like your films. You go off. Here's a here's a here's 150 million. You go off and produce a, a great film that I know is uh, is going to blow people's wall. Uh, you know, talks out of the wall. He's he's just got that confidence uh, now, and Hollywood has that confidence in him. Yeah, 
to give yeah, him the sufficient funds to be able to do that. So what were you going for? Blow out of the water or blow socks off? Oh, well, blow out of the water or blow socks or off. Or are you going to blow socks off out of the water? Blow, blow socks, socks off out, out of the water? Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. sure. I can't yeah. remember what you actually said then. Um, so, as I say, we can't go back to the following because I don't have it. So, we will go back to 2000 and we will look at Memento. So, I'm going to do a brief sort of synopsis. Again, it, it, just in case you haven't seen these films, some people, um, I would advise you to go and watch all of them. Uh, I'd, I'd advise you to watch them in order, actually, as well, because I do think you see a development of the directorial style as he goes along. Um, so Memento is the story, essentially, of a uh, a man who has suffered uh, some brain damage and now suffers from short-term memory loss and is trying to find the man who raped and murdered his wife in the incident that robbed him of his short-term memory. Again, that is not at all what the film is about, but that is the plot of the film. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, no, yeah. It's, uh, it, 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 the thing is, is that it's hard to sell this film uh, going in because it's essentially Memento, a guy who has lost his, uh, his memory and he's trying to piece everything together in very confusing circumstances with pictures, with... Uh, you know, tattoos or, you know, scribblings and things like this. Um, you were never, ever going to be able to get the full plot of the film uh, in, in, in the context of a synopsis for no. you to be able to watch the film. It's until you've watched the film that you get a full understanding of what has transpired and what the film is really about. Yeah, quite. And again, the again, you've got to watch it, but the, the, there's a, a split narrative. And, we, you know, we've seen this gimmick before. Um, we've seen this gimmick again now. I can't think that I've seen it before, but, you know, people may correct me. Maybe there is an example of someone who did this sort of uh, non, uh, you know, things in non-chronological order. So essentially we start, the first scene is the end of the story. And we then work our way backwards in sequences to the beginning of this chapter that we're looking at in this man's life because it isn't the whole life it's you know i don't know what would you say maybe a week in his life max uh, yeah yeah something like that the, it may yeah. even just be a few days but you know yeah. you're developing you're following this character for a few days but you start at the end and you work your way towards the beginning now again i i have seen this used since but purely as a gimmick um and and I hate it when they do that. When they you, you know when you mess with structure just for the sake of messing with structure to try and make things more interesting, because if you start at the end, you've then created questions as to how you got there that then people are going to be interested in watching the film to find out the answers to. Yeah, it's. I, I would argue you're still using it as a gimmick there. Whereas it's, here, uh, it reminds me of, uh, of of the Rick and Morty episode where you know there's the guy and he's reading his script and he's like, oh, the blah blah blah, this all happens. Uh, you know, cut to three weeks earlier or something like that. And Morty's like, yeah, yeah I kind of hate these setups. I'm of the same volition. I do hate these. Okay, mm -hmm. this is transpired. Ooh, let's go back three weeks earlier and watch yeah. this. No, I hate that kind of trope. This is not that trope. No, and that's the point. This is a split narrative. And by the end of it, you realize that the narrative has been split in this way because it is the best way that the director could think of to help you understand what the character is experiencing. The character experiences life in exactly the same way as we watch the film. He experiences it in small chunks that he can remember for that small chunk. As soon as that small chunk has gone, 
he doesn't remember it anymore unless he's written something down from it. And it's not in order. So we're watching things that happen at the beginning of the film. Then we cut to a sequence that's from the end of the film. Then we cut back to a sequence that's just after the one that we've just watched at the beginning of the film. But all of that is to try and create the sense of confusion and um, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a sense of befuddlement. Yes. Yeah. I'll take befuddlement. That isn't what I was looking for, but it'll cover it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, a, a, yeah, a sense of confusion, a sense of um, of worry, you know, because there is that sense of worry of not knowing where things are and not knowing whether what you're saying is what you're really saying and what you've said is actually what you've been said. And then you've got other people telling you that what you think is not what you think. There's a fantastic moment in the middle of it where he is panicking because he's he's figured something out that's really important about a character and he is struggling to find a pen to write shit down. But because that character knows him and is working him, she takes all the pens away because she knows that the second she leaves, he is going to try and write down that she is a bad person and not trying to help him. But if he can't find a pen to write it down in time and she comes in again and and trips him trips his brain process up he'll forget that he's just you know she's just exposed herself as being an asshole who's out to fucking hurt him and he doesn't manage it because she, it works he's looking for a pen he's scrambling for a pen trying to keep things in mind and then she opens the door and slams it behind her and it kicks his brain out of the loop that it's in uh -huh. into the next scene and so we forget it and it's left and it, it's that, like I say, you, you, those sort of bits show you that that's why he structured it in this way, to make you, to try and put you in the the shoes of the character as best you possibly can with with something like this. Hmm. I um, mean, the film itself is is very very well edited, and and that's the thing. Hmm. It's without that, um, without that skill. Again, these are the skills that he takes you know further on as, as he progresses through his films but again it's it's that thing of uh, the editing for this was very very important um and putting the structure of the the film together in such a way was very very important as well i know that there are uh you know black copies as they might be referred to uh out on the internet which are essentially uh, a version of this film cut in chronological order oh that's uh that's on the dvd yeah um i've got it on the dvd it's the yeah it, it starts with the black and white sequences plays into the color sequences and then plays the color sequences in order yeah so but, it's uh and, the, and the, it makes sense because obviously yeah. he knows what he's doing he knew the story start to finish and then fucked with the the placement of the scenes mm. you know i i genuinely think it's a film he wrote in chronological order but knew that he was going to chop and move things around into different orders and that's why it works, no matter how you watch it. I prefer watching it in the in its original format because, as I say, that yeah, well, that, that that's the format that it was given, and that's the yeah. way that he wanted it, and that was the yeah. way he intended so that it you to could be try and identify with the character. But mm. obviously, when it was first released, yes, there were morons who couldn't wrap their head around it in the normal format, so they wanted it reordered and and spoon fed back to them. Which fair enough. Um, so. Where are we? So again, there's there's a comparison here actually to Dunkirk with this whole split narrative, mm -hmm. um, you know, because it's 
the moment when we're watching the final black and white sequence, as it turns out, but we don't know that it is at the time because the black, again, to just clarify, if you haven't seen it, the black and we're watching black and white footage, which is flashback. And then we're watching color footage, which is present day. And there is a point where we're watching a piece of the black and white footage and slowly the color starts to come into it. And we realize that we're now in the final color sequence. Um, and the two have tied together. And it, it's that moment where you go, oh, shit, I get it. Like, just pennies start dropping all over the place. Dunkirk has a very similar thing in the third act. When those disparate threads that we've been watching suddenly start to just play into each other and tie up. And it's fantastic. It's, it's, it feels so rewarding as a viewer because you, you have understood what's going on and, and, and they've explained it to you in a satisfactory manner. Does it answer every question out there? No, of course it doesn't. And I love it for that. We never know whether he actually killed the right guy or not, whether he does kill the right guy. Is it the first guy he's killed from what we see? No. So how many more are there? How long has he been doing this? You know, we are a, a tiny fragment in this guy's life. Um, but it fascinates me. I, and I like the fact that we don't get the answers because as far as I see it, the, 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 the character doesn't have the answers. And if he doesn't have the answers, how can he give them to us? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, it still baffles me to this day to think about how Nolan managed to, you know, put all that shit together in his head. <laughs> and have it make sense as he was writing it. I just, it, it astonishes me that he, he was ever able to do that because I'd just get lost. Um, so yeah, it's still incredible 20 years on. Um, it, it's a fantastic film. It was one of the films actually that I uh, I saw it as part of the Odeon's director's chair um, uh, thing that they were doing at the time. Uh, and the three that I remember that were amazing that I saw in that, that were Memento, Oh brother, where art thou? And Shadow of the Vampire, which is William Willem Dafoe uh, playing the guy who played Nosferatu. Oh in yes, the Nosferatu yes. movie, and uh, delving into the uh, the rumor and myth that the actor was actually a vampire. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, god, I yeah. I, I just think he was quite a method actor. That's all. It was back in the 1930s or whatever, so it was probably crazy like that. So yeah, Memento. Anything else you want to say on that one? No, uh, I mean it's great performances as as well by. Uh, another oh yes, I've got a note on that, and I haven't. Yeah. Joe Pantoliano always stands out to me. I love that guy. Yeah, I mean he he's taken very much a back seat. Uh, he he's not really been as prevalent uh, within Hollywood, I suppose, within the last. Yeah. I don't know five five maybe. 10 well, I years suppose now? the last thing uh, he probably would have been in without me checking is if he came back to be the captain of the. Um, Oh, he's the boss Bad in Boys. Bad Boys, thank you. Yes. That's where I was going. As far it. as I understand, yes, he did. Yeah. Um, but I mean, again, he's done some fantastic turns in The Matrix. Yeah. Uh, you know, probably, oh, God, yeah, he's cyphering you know. the first one, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, that's the thing. Like, people forget, like, the first Matrix was good. Uh, we'll yeah, the first Matrix was incredible. Uh, he was also in, I mean, he's been in loads of stuff, but he was also in Sopranos as well as a, as a wonderful character as well. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Again, uh, we've got Guy Ritchie. Uh, Guy Ritchie, sorry. Yeah. Guy Pierce. Guy, Guy Pierce. Um, he was good. very, very good in this. Again, his star was always kind of on the rise anyway in Hollywood. Uh, yeah. I can't recall whether this was before or after LA Confidential, another film I absolutely adore. I want to um, say that was 98, 99. Hmm. But um, I may be wrong. So I'd, I'd um, say it was just before. 
Yeah, and I'm trying to remember. Is it Ka- uh, Carrie Ann Moss? Moss. Yeah. yeah, I thought so. I thought I think she's okay in it. I mean, I I, I don't I've, rate I've her as an actress no, really I've either. She's she's Trinity, and when I've seen her do anything else, she's just like a slightly more emotional version of Trinity. I, you know, she's not. She was one of the least enjoyable things about the Iron Fist series, and uh, yes, Jessica Jones as well. Absolutely, because again, she's that stiff. I don't, I don't see her as anything other than that stiff, uh, high, uh, highly strong female role that she always mm. seems to be yeah. um uh yeah but cool okay so insomnia 2002 this is robin williams and al pacino in essence leading a film about the investigation into a murdered teen girl in i was going to say alaska but i actually think it's somewhere in canada somewhere uh, but Nova Scotia or something. Nova like that. Scotia, yeah, that's what I was going to say. So yeah, it's it's very far north, and the the idea is that there's um there's no uh, the sun never goes down at, mm-hmm. at, up there yep. at this particular time when he's up there. So yeah, on the surface, as I said earlier, it's Robin Williams and Al Pacino leading a film about the investigation into a murdered teen girl. I don't think that's what it's about in the slightest. <laughs> but <I> can, no, <laughs> that is the plot of the film. And yeah. this is my point. Now, here is our first, as far as I'm aware, because obviously I haven't seen following and I don't, it doesn't happen in Memento, although you could argue that the entire credit, opening credit sequence of Memento is uh, him showing us something totally out of context that only mm. makes sense by the time you get to the end of the film. Yeah, yeah. I because so, yeah. it's the slow motion reversal of him shooting Joe Pantoliano in the face, isn't it? In the head. It's the it's that in slow motion, but going yeah. backwards. Yeah. Um, Insomnia starts with in its title sequence, blood flushing through fabric, but under a microscope, so you can see the actual weave of the cotton, um, and then blood, red blood, flushes through through it in the color, and this pops up quite a few times, but it only actually makes sense when we get to the end of the film. Uh, yeah, I think this is about the grey area between good and bad, um, and whether it's that easy to say that someone is good or bad. Yeah. Um, doing the wrong thing for the right reason. See McNulty in The Wire in the final season with the serial killer and that. Um, Jimmy! Exactly. Jimmy! <laughs> Still love punk for that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, is it... <sighs> You know, is it about that? Is it actually about the mental deterioration of a man whose demons won't let him sleep? Because you could see it as that. You could see it as a character study on Al Pacino's character and a man who is so haunted by his own mistakes and his own skeletons that he 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 just breaks down over a period of time as you add no sleep into the mix because again going to the title he begins to suffer from insomnia because it is so bright in this place all the time but that isn't necessarily the actual reason he can't sleep he can't sleep because he's done wrong and it looks like people are on his trail to find out about it now and then he makes a mistake but is it a mistake or did he do it on purpose? And there's a fantastic bit when we get to the end and 
he gets asked whether he did something on purpose or not. And he just says, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I just don't know anymore because he is broken. So yeah, we, we're, we're playing with the, the gray area. We're playing with good and bad. Al Pacino's cop, as far as we're aware, is a good guy. But then, as I say, it, it, there's there's some, as it transpires, the, the, the blood that we're watching flushing through fabric is playing on his mind because he planted evidence in uh, a suspect's room. And the reason that he did that is because he he said he can see it in a guy's eyes when they're guilty and he knew the guy was guilty is that good enough mm. is that good enough cuz surely that's just a gut call that's just judgment isn't it any of us could say that i can't go out there and murder someone because i look in their eyes and i say no they're going to kill someone one day that isn't how it works so as i say it's playing about it but then again if he's doing it if this guy was really a bad guy and he was doing it to get rid of this bad guy, then is it okay? Does it does it make it any better or not? And this is what it's playing with. Again, taking... Sorry, if you want to come in, Phil. No, free. no, no, please carry no, on, dude. Okay. If you're... As in Memento, he wanted us to try and be in the shoes of the character as much as we possibly could by using this, this narrative gimmick of uh, messing with the timelines and, and chopping the scene short. Now, I feel he does the same thing in here. Every time I watch this film, I am shattered by the end of it. Mm. I am drained. <laughs> yeah, drained is probably the best word for it, yeah. Because he does such a great job of letting me feel how Al Pacino feels. And again, it's down to Al Pacino, who I think turns in a really good performance at a time when he wasn't necessarily... He, he was phoning them in at times, let's be honest depending on what the movie was. Um, and I think he puts in a really good performance and gets, I, I identify with him. I feel it. And, you know, I know you've suffered with, with, with insomnia and do, do still yeah, sometimes, so. as yeah, have yeah. myself. And I identify with that so much. It's the, the, the way he puts it across. There's, there's the tossing and turning, trying to block out every sliver of light in the room because it's so bright. Um, I used to do that when I, when I was a traveling uh, support person, uh, traveling around the country, staying in hotels every night. I used to have a sewing kit with me. Uh, because the premiere in curtains didn't always meet at the top. <laughs> so I used to go and I used to sit and sew, just tack them together, and yeah. I'd sew the top of the curtains together so that they wouldn't separate and it would block out as much light as possible. Yeah, mine's less about the physical in terms of, you know, light and, and things in the room. It's more about my brain just does not shut off. Oh, yeah, it absolutely. does not have an off switch. But I think that's uh, the yeah. point, isn't it? That's that's the point I'm trying to make is that yeah. his isn't... Blocking out the light for Al Pacino does nothing. No. It's, it's like you say, it's what's in his head. It's the inner demons and the ghosts of his mistakes that are keeping him awake, not the fact that there's a bit of light coming through the window at midnight. But when you are being, certainly I, I would, uh, for me, when I, when my brain is not going to sleep and not shutting off for whatever reason, I blame everything I can find. I blame the light. I blame this. I blame that because I know that I can't just turn my brain off. So I look for everything else that might be stopping it. I know damn well, if I'm tired enough, I'll fall asleep in the middle of the day in the garden with the sun blazing because that's what happens. 
So it, it is usually a psychological component that is affecting it. But there's the bit where he's blocked everything up as much as he can. And um, I've just written ER lady because she was in ER, but I can't Maura remember Tierney. the actress's name. Tierney? Maura Tierney. Oh, yes. I know who you were. I think she played Ab in ER. Okay, cool. Yeah, the good lady teacher her indoors newer from er so i just wrote er lady oh um, god that's think of how old that is now anyway that's yeah, a discussion know, for another day <laughs> yeah. um yeah she, she walks in and he's like oh my god it's so bright and she's like it's really dark in here and turns the light on and suddenly you you see actually how dark it was in that room and i've done that myself i've thought oh my god it's so freaking bright in here and then i've turned the light on and gone ah fuck it's blinding jesus hmm. and it's but but your eyes have adjusted that's the point it looks bright to you because your eyes have adjusted to the darkness to try and see as much as they can with the little light they've got it's the way it works um i think the uh again going you know going to the, to the performances of this um again we, we we're used to seeing the robin williams of old, of, of, of more comedic, very yep, less absolutely uh, serious and very less, uh, you know, dark uh, roles mm-hmm. that, that he portrays. He has done them over the years. Yeah, um, I think he, this he, and he uh, One Hour Photo was a similar yeah. sort of dark role for him as well. But very, yeah, very, very I mean, good. I enjoyed it, but, you know. That's the thing. He's done a lot of comedy. He's done a lot of uh, introspection of who so even if you go back and look at good morning vietnam like yes it's, yeah. it's yeah, comedic yeah. in places but it's also an investigation of you know the the issues that were faced during that period uh how some of those soldiers got on uh how, how they managed to discuss the things that happened in vietnam uh, you know politically uh socially etc is is some of the areas that he was looking at in that and again, there's been other films where you've just kind of gone, actually, again, Toys is the weirdest goddamn film oh, God, you will ever yeah, freaking yeah, yeah. see. But again, there's some real serious to- undertones in there that comes from Williams. So mm-hmm. again, we all know the comedic chops of him, but again, the acting chops of him. Look back at Goodwill Hunting, for Christ's sake. Yeah. The reason that film is the success film. as it was is because of Robin Williams' performance in that. Yeah. Likewise yeah, in here. Um, and again, bouncing off of uh, Al Pacino. Again, Al Pacino had just kind of gone through the motions for a good number of years prior to this, just kind of doing film after film. I think mm. uh, I'm trying to think of the one with Keanu Reeves, where he's essentially the devil playing a oh, Devil's Advocate. Devil's Advocate. Thank you. This is kind I of love that, that film. It's yeah, trashy exactly. as okay. shit, so but I love it. it. <laughs> that's it. So this is one of those where like he'd done a load of crap, and then he'd done this and he done devil's advocate and you kind of go actually yeah i forget pacino's actually quite good um, so again but what she knows thron as well wasn't it charlie's thron, one of her very very earliest films very yeah. early, um, yes. and just watching these two interact in in that capacity was very intriguing not mm. a a couple of actors you would put together and expect to have very good chemistry against one another yeah absolutely and uh, yeah the they draw comparisons in the film between the two characters uh, playing up the shades of grey, you know, and Al Pacino is very much, I'm not the same as you. Well, why not? At the end of the day, he he loved this girl. She didn't love him the same way. And when she laughed at him because he'd suggested that he did like her that way and that she might like him the same way, she laughs at him, he gets angry and accidentally kills her, you know, accidentally pushes her too hard, whatever it might be. 
strangles her actually doesn't he so there's a, there is a bit of thought in it but then again you would argue that it takes quite a lot of thought to prepare to set up someone for a crime they didn't commit so who's the bad guy who's the real bad guy both of them really isn't it mm. Mm. so uh, yeah, I don't think I've got anything more on that one. Like I say, I, I think it's a very interesting film. I think it's a very good film. Um, I don't think we'd quite gotten to... Like I say, I think we can see that he doesn't he doesn't want to do anything surface at this stage. Because you could have quite simply just done... You could have called it something different than Insomnia and just done mm. a very standard... You know, set that in New York in the same time period and it's a basic cop thriller, isn't it? you move it somewhere else, you add the extra bits and pieces here and there, and suddenly you've got a far more interesting prospect than your average cop thriller. I don't be wrong, there's a place for those, but I I always enjoy being challenged. Uh, the Prestige, 2006. Uh, now, I'll be honest, I didn't rewatch this one, because this is probably the only one, without having seen the following, that I would say I'm less bothered about. Um, it is one of, it's not surface, it's got depth to it, but I feel that because it's a magic trick, essentially, it's one of the most basic of his works because going into it, I was aware I was looking for a twist and that at some point I was going to get dealt a twist. Now you can argue that some of his stuff here, you know, you could argue that the end of Memento is a twist ending. I wouldn't because I don't think it is revealed as a twist. I think the seeds are planted as you go through and it's more of a realisation of, of you making sense of what you've seen rather than being given a key piece of information that suddenly turns everything on its head, which I would say a twist is. Um, and essentially, that's how I feel the prestige goes. It, it, I, it doesn't hold my interest very well because I know I'm just looking for a twist. I've seen it once. I know the twist. Well, there you go then. See, I thoroughly enjoy this film. I go, absolutely go love this film. Go for film. it. I'm, I'm, I'm um, I think it. because it's, uh, be, yeah, okay. Granted, the, the, there's a twist in there. First time you see it, you're not going to get it. No, no, uh, no. And I'm not saying no, I did get nobody, the twist nobody at all. That I, I just has never seen this has has gone in and gone. Oh, but uh, again, that's like saying, you know, I could uh, I could watch uh empire strikes back and then get to it and go oh this is it turns out he's anakin's father what if I i'm still gonna watch it again just because i know that he's anakin's father doesn't yes. mean i'm not gonna watch if it if i again. could defend that slightly i would say that anakin being uh vader being luke's father isn't isn't a main driving factor of the plot it's it's an incidental piece of information that helps us understand the relationships between characters whereas in the prestige the twist does does impact the plot is is a plot point is a key to the plot and again i'm not saying that i got the twist in the beginning what i'm saying is as i went in because they even explain that that the prestige means to to complete a magic trick don't they mm -hmm. is is to pull off a magic trick is a prestige so i was aware i was looking for a magic trick or a twist at some point i didn't find it i didn't get it as we were going through I, that's what I was constantly looking for as I was watching it. I think this is uh, one of, if not perhaps one of his best works, uh, mm -hmm. because 
the actors involved in this, uh, the story involved in it, the visuals involved in it, uh, the, the mise-en-scene of it all is, is very befitting to the period that he set it in. Um, uh, the, the surprise cameo uh, of David Bowie in there is, is absolutely brilliant. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, loads of people like were like, why is he in there? Who cares why he's in there? Does he play Tesla? He does. He plays Nicholas yeah. Tesla, and he's absolutely fantastic. And mm. again, there's those little things of uh, you know the first time Jackman's character goes to see him, uh, and then kind of walks out and sees his hat in in the in the ground, and you just kind of like, okay, so there's these little threads piecing it through as as we go along. Um, you know, Christian Bale's relationship with his wife um, or wives, as as you might say, in in some ways, uh, the the way that they all interact, the the surprises that are coming, you don't see most of this coming along. You just see this as a competition between two magicians who kind of have a want a bit of a one-man-upmanship over each other. Yeah. And it's so much more than that. It gets so much further than that. I think this is just one of his best works um, because he's not, at this point, got the hundreds and hundreds of millions of budget that he will get, get as a result of kind of going on and, and doing Batman and... and Dark Knight yeah. and, and things like that. This this is before he suddenly gets those kind of budgets. Oh so yeah, this was this 06, is... so Begins was 05, wasn't it? So this is yeah. like a, just after Batman Begins. That's it. And now, don't get me wrong, that, that made a truckload and, and that gave him variety, but it's not until he does the second Batman. But, yeah, 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 absolutely. 2008. It suddenly changes. But yeah. at the same time, you've got him uh, you know, you've got Hugh Jackman uh, and, and you've got Christian Bale. So you've got Batman and Wolverine. I mean, come on, Batman and Wolverine. <laughs> uh, you've got the uh, wonderful Michael Caine reappearing in yet another Nolan film. And uh, I think well, he's going to appear in he, practically he, every... He is in every Nolan film from this point. Yes, exactly. So, the, the, again, we've got credibility of, of, of the acting. We've got, uh, again, David Bowie, as I say, he's, he's fantastic. You could put a number of different actors or personalities in that role, and it wouldn't have worked as well. Putting no. him there was absolutely ingenious. Um, I really, I just really, really love it. I think because I did again as as somebody who very, very much goes through films and and picks out every little thread and tries to pick up every little surprise before it comes. I did get half of what was going to go on, and mm. this is very pleasantly surprising for me. Again, when I go back and watch it and and have rewatched it you pick up so much more because you pick up uh, the interactions between the brothers. I'll say no more on that because I'm encouraging everybody to go and watch this. The interactions between the brothers, uh, how certain threads maneuvered throughout the film. And you can see that plodding along now in retrospect, having, having picked up what happens at the end. Again, it's just an examination of science, of magic, uh, of logic. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. And I, Love it. I, I really do. I think it's one of his best works because it was before suddenly he gets given a truckload of money and the expectations of what he was doing is, you know, far exceeds. I think for the budget that he had, for the cast and for the story, I think it's just fantastic, if not his best produced picture. But that's just mm. me. Interesting. Interesting. Hmm. Uh, well, yeah, like I say, I, I, I defer to you on that one then. I've, um, like I say, it just doesn't, it doesn't hit for me quite as much as the rest of the stuff does. But there you go. That's, that's the subjective nature of filming, isn't it? Um, well, I know there, that, um... there are reasons why the one that I will choose as my favorite resonates with me. And I yeah. would imagine that those reasons don't exist for you because mm. you don't have children. Sure. So um... you don't see it, you know, you maybe don't come at it from the same point of view as I do. Sure. But then again, I mean... similarly, I don't come at some things the same way you do. So, you know. That, hence the subjective nature 
it also came out at a point where there was a very similar film with Ed Norton, uh, I believe, called The Illusionist. God, that was uh, shit. And that was it. <laughs> so that's the thing. It was funny because you literally put these juxtapositions against one another. Uh, and you kind of had similar, I wouldn't necessarily say expectations, but you would have gone, Ed Norton, oh, he's great. He's done X, Y, and Z. And, and it was an absolute travesty. It was absolutely boring as shit. Mm. Whereas this intrigues me. This one gripped me. Um, and yeah, I, I can still just think of a number of scenes in, in, in my head now that, that played and resonated. So, yeah. Cool. Okay. Uh, so next one is Inception, which I haven't watched again very recently, but I have watched in other times um there's there's some very interesting stuff in this i think it's i mean if you remember at the time it came out there was so much so much about it and and i always was confused as to how people didn't understand what was happening because again i think he does a great job of introducing us to something that's completely out of the realms of our understanding and makes it relatable to us and makes us understand uh, the the structures of it and how it works. And um, again, he's always, always throughout all this stuff, if he sets up a world that is slightly different to ours, he knows the boundaries and he obeys the rules. He never, ever strays from them. So if, you know, with the time shift thing as it goes down, he never messes with that just to suit him. The timing is the timing and the timing will stay the same because that is the rules of going within a dream to into a dream into a dream. So this movie essentially is about a man, Leonardo DiCaprio, who is uh, a dream thief, for want of a better word, an idea thief. But he gets into people's dreams and he gets secrets from them and carries out heists, essentially, in, in people's heads. Do you think that's a fair way to put it? Yes. Um... He gets challenged with <laughs> yeah. trying to implant an idea, not take something out of someone's head, put an idea into someone's head, or inception, as they call it, um, so that that person will then have this idea and follow this idea through to its end. Well, um, that's, I mean, in a sense, that's that's what they're, that, that's what, the end goal is but at this moment in time that's not something that they feel is possible in in the scope no. of his kind of business relations with uh, joseph gordon levitt um their, their whole but thing he is does that, say yeah, they... that he's done it before well yes which he becomes has. important he has but then again that leads into 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 a little bit more of his character but as it as it stands he is going into people's brains to their dreams with the intent of stealing some level of information corporate espionage is the best way yeah, of looking that's at it. it yes that's the word i'm sure he uses that himself in the film doesn't he mm -hmm. um so yeah uh again another one that starts with a uh something totally out of context uh because it either starts with the spinner his spinner just spinning or it starts or the first sequence is him washing up on a beach and getting dragged up to ken Watanabe's it is. house, yeah, isn't it? Is. it? Yeah, it's it's the last. And Ken Watanabe is an old man, and you have no idea what any of this means. And then suddenly, we're we're starting from the beginning, and then obviously that all makes sense in the third act, right at the end. Um, but yeah, it. I mean, it's an incredible film on on many many levels. I feel. Um, 
it's uh, the, the concepts it's dealing with, I think are brilliant. I think they're well worked. I think they're, again, they're fantastically shown. He's trying to show us as much as he can what the, he's trying to put us in the character shoes and trying to give us the experience that they are having. Um, from an effects point of view, I think, he, he, you know, it's standard Chris Nolan. It's, I am going to do all of this or as much of this as I can practically and with actual visual effects before I have to go to special effects to to put things in, you know, or is it the other way around? Special effects is one and visual effects is the other, but either way, he's using practical effects as often as he can. The sequence where the Jason Gordon-Levitt is, um, sorry, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is fighting someone in a hotel corridor and the whole room is turning and he's having to run up the walls and onto the ceiling to get to the guy. You know, that was all a practical rig that they built and they turned around and filmed him going through because that's the way that it looked the best. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the there are so many great visuals in this, as you say. Scene with the rotating room, which they clearly constructed. Uh, again, the little bits where he is... Um, walking down the street well, i say sorry they're sat at the cafe and then everything explodes yes. around um around them um and again when they go for a walk and then she starts grabbing doors and then starts turning things and then creating uh you know elaborate very long corridors and and things like this it begins to unravel itself and you realize that in this dream state yeah anything practically is possible mm -hmm. but there are there are still rules and limitations to what they can do like the infinite staircase and things like that yes yeah. it still has to be there it has to be functional but yes it can be an infinite staircase but guess what but it also doesn't have to be so there's a lot of constrictions to what they can do because they don't want to make the person whose dream they're going into abundantly aware that they're dreaming so yeah. they need to play around with this kind of stuff so that was very intriguing uh the the again going to the detail the level of drugs the type of drugs that you need to have in your system in order to be able to reach x level uh you know uh z yeah. level uh, whatever those levels are determined by these kind of external factors the fact that you have to have your little piece that has to be specific to you only you know the weight of it the the design of it the shape of it that yeah, it feels you know what it you does because you need to know for yourself that you are in a dream or not so all yeah. of those little things um introducing each of the various factors to put this whole operation together you need your, your you know your dicaprio character because he's the kind of head guy you need uh gordon levitz because he's kind of the rational guy who's gonna try and deal with some of the nitty-gritty you've got your tom hardy who's kind of the um he's almost the comedy relief in this isn't he, he? he is the comedy but, relief. i mean he's not gordon that's levitz. underselling uh, him yeah. entirely but you know he he's the he's the 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 stuff guy isn't he he's the equipment man yeah, he's the personality guy as well because he yeah. takes on the persona of uh, of other people and things like that. So he's very good at it. You've got um, what's the face, Ellen? What's her face? Uh, Ellen Page. Ellen Page. Thank you. Um, as the creator, she's, the, she's the essentially architect. us, isn't she? She's yeah. she's the viewer. She's leading us because she's never experienced anything like this and doesn't know that this exists. Mm -hmm. So she is we're learning stuff as she learns it. And that's how we get the exposition out because the character has to explain it to her or she asks the question because she doesn't know the answer. 
and then we get to join her in getting the answer to it. So it's um, a, we discover stuff as she discovers it going along. Yeah, you've got Ken with Sonobi as the the money man. Yeah, is the basically. best way of describing him in, in many respects. Yeah, but this is all uh, basically for um, for DiCaprio's character. Th- this whole enterprise is the most important thing to him because it allows him the possibility of returning home to his kids. Now, the reason for that, again, this is where he's created or he's done Inception before, is because he's implanted the 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 memory in his previous uh, you know wife's mind that the reality that they were in wasn't real yeah because they went to limbo didn't they yeah and they've been in there so long he didn't want to be in there anymore and he wanted her to come out but she didn't want to necessarily come out so he put the idea in her head that yeah okay it's not real and maybe she but even when she went back to the real world she still was under the delusion that none of this is real the idea had taken hold so well that she no longer believed any place she was in was the real world um, and so killing herself implicates DiCaprio's character in a murder, suicide kind of a situation. Well, she does that, doesn't uh, she? She yeah. sets it up to make it look like he murdered her because yeah. then he has no choice other but than to, to join her well. in yeah. jumping yeah. or to stay there and face the impact of what she's set up. Yeah. So this whole thing is, is basically him, uh, as you as you. And, and this is perhaps where you're saying about the importance of getting home to his kids. Mm. Um, and, and that's that's the, the he will do anything that he can. He will do something which everybody believes to be incapable of being done. Mm-hmm. And he will do it because that's what he has to do to get home to his kids. Yeah. And even if he knows it's damaging and, you know, it could affect he, he knows the implications of what he's about to do. And he's going to do it anyway, because, as you say, he he is driven by the sole thought of getting back to his children in the real world yeah uh, i mean there's been uh, a number of parodies about this uh you know what place obviously touched on it in south park yeah i was gonna say we discussed it and again loads of other people have parodied it and and taking the piss out of it but at the same time i think it's perhaps just jealousy of of, of people going ah oh, i wish i'd thought of that before or ah oh, i just don't get it I'm too stupid to get it. And I, that, that, that's, that's rather critical. I've had numerous conversations with people that just say, plain simply said, they didn't enjoy it because they didn't get it. Mm, uh, which mm, I I've understand. heard that too. And I'm, I, um, yeah, I kind of find myself going, really? How? Yeah. What? You know, I can help you, I think, because I don't, like, I think either you're overthinking it and you're trying to put more into it than there is, or you're just not understanding what's being explained to you. Because, mm-hmm. as I say, he does explain it. It is there. They tell you each step of oh, the way. Oh, very much so. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah, yeah. That's it. It's. I think it's at the very beginning where he's having that conversation with Ken Watanabe. He's he basically just describing a, a situation where he he could go into somebody's mind and do X, Y, and Z. And yeah, he elaborates on it numerous times throughout the course of the film. It's not a throwaway kind of a thing of oh, okay, this is what we're doing. And no, no, no. It's laid out. It's all piece by piece shown in front of you. This is what happens, and this is how we're going to get to this. Again, the performances of everybody involved is absolutely phenomenal, which is why I think this was perhaps the most critically uh, successful film and commercially successful film uh, because of the fact that you've got your DiCaprio's in there. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, you've big, big got names. big names like that. Um, you've got um, 
Ellen Page again coming out of Juno. So again, you've got that kind of indie darling. Yeah, she was a star on the rise, absolutely. Exactly. Uh, you've got the experienced hands, Ken Watanabe, the returning Michael Caine. Uh, Tom Hardy, who, again, foreshadowing him appearing in, in a later Nolan film. No, uh, Nolan films, I should say. Um, again, yeah, it's he's just, not in Interstellar, but he is in Dunkirk. So. He is in Dunkirk. He's also in another one, but we've, we can't talk about that because we've already discussed it. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Bane, of course. Yeah, yeah. Bane, Bane, of course. Yeah. Dark, but, yeah. uh, but again, the, the, the story for this is fantastic. The, the visuals for this is fantastic. The acting is absolutely fantastic in it. And mm. that's the thing, as you say, by the end of the film, uh, again, it's DiCaprio. You love to hate this guy because, you know, he's, he's such a bastard at times because he's very good at what he does. He yeah. does make you kind of click with his uh, with, with his characters. He, he, you know, he may be a complete bastard in real life. I have no idea. He seems like an nice I don't guy. know. I just always, it's always been the jealousy thing for me. How yeah, can that's you, it, it's yeah. like you Brad Pitt. Like you, you can't be that good at acting, be that attractive. It's just not fair. Yeah, you, you're being like, a You're bastard. not allowed to have all of it. <laughs> um, but again, he's so good. He's very, very good at this. He's you, you get the compassion for him. By the end of this film, you kind of want him to, to have succeeded so that he can return to his kids. The, the ending, which, you know, everybody that has understood the film has, has, has always been talked about. Does it spin? Does the does it keep spinning? Does it not? And I love that question as yeah, well. I don't and I love know. the fact that he left it there. Yeah. And again, that's another hallmark of his work. He doesn't always, I, I, I would say he gives us the answers we need, but not every single answer. <laughs> and I, I think that's the way to be. Because again, I would argue that, you know, there's, I, I haven't come out of, let's, let's take bloody Rise of Skywalker again. I'm sick of banging on about it, but let's take that again. Um, oh, what have we learned since the last time we met up? fucking apparently emperor palpatine was a clone in empire strikes back beg your pardon and in return of the jedi beg your pardon yeah apparently so apparently jj abrahams had a discussion with george lucas and george lucas told him that uh palpatine was a clone already by the time they got to return of the jedi which is okay, why right, he didn't let's... die when he was okay, thrown down the whatever, thing. Whatever. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, I meant to no, mention it in whatever. news. I'm really sorry. But Dear good God, let's right. take I'm that, just... right? <sighs> I have not come out of one of Nolan's films going, well, hang on. A character turned to someone during that film and went, I need to tell you something. And then we never found out what it was. That is a question that should be <laughs> yeah. answered. Okay. That is yeah. a question you should answer yeah. within the running time of your film. I shouldn't have to read an interview on Twitter with you afterwards, you twat. Yes. Yes. But I have never come out of one of his films with a question that I don't know the answer to, that the yeah. film, the runtime of the film has not given me the answer to. As you say, Maybe unless... with Interstellar. In... Yeah. But I would argue that you just need more watches of that film. Yeah. And the more you watch it, the more it starts to make sense. I have understood something in my most recent watch through of it that I've never understood before. Mm. And this must be the sixth or seventh time I've watched the film now. So there is always something there. Uh, anyway, sorry. Anything else you want to say about? Inception? No, uh, as I say, I think it's, uh, I think it's, Fantastic! fantastic. I think cast. it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. It's one of those films that I do have to watch every couple of years just to remind myself of good cinema. Uh, as, as as weird as that is, mm, it's mm. it's a great story. It's great acting. It's great special effects. Um, it, and that's the thing. Sometimes that is what you need to remind I yourself. Think of he's what good almost is. Uh, he almost makes Thinking Man's blockbusters. Sure. Yeah. Because they are yeah, block, that's a very good they are blockbusters, yeah, yeah. but they are not. You know, 
Skyscraper starring Dwayne Johnson or Rampage starring Dwayne. Can I think of any that don't star Dwayne Johnson these days? No, pretty much not. So, you know, it, it's not Baywatch. your box. Oh, no. Uh, no, no. Um, oh, Jumanji. The, no, no. Hang no. On. Uh, anyway, you get my point. The, sure. the big blockbusters can be a bit. No, not, not to say that there's not a place for, for simplicity sometimes and an entertaining romp. I am all there for that. I, I do think Skyscraper starring Dwayne Johnson is an incredibly entertaining film. It's essentially just a reboot of Die Hard. But I, I like it, and I'm entertained, and I'm enthralled for the hour and 40 minutes that it's there. I don't think it's making a, a, you know, a deeper point. I don't think there's a huge amount of depth to it. But it doesn't mean it's not fun and entertaining for its runtime. Mm. So uh, the next one, then, would be Interstellar 2014. Now, this is the closest thing I can think of that he's done that is that I can see would be a project for him. That he is less less interested in making it relatable to the viewer, and mm. he's more interested in telling the story that he wants to tell. Okay. And sure. because again, I think I was trying to think about the plot of this film. What is the plot of Interstellar? So the general plot of Interstellar is that the Earth is slowly but surely dying and can no longer be sustained. Uh, the population is going to be unable to feed itself because of, I don't know, what is this, solar radiation? Or they call it blight, the, essentially. Blight, blight that's it. A, yeah, it essentially, blight is uh, killing the crops. Year after year, a different crop dies, and they're yeah, down to only um, being able to grow corn now. Exactly. So uh, the, the Earth is slowly but surely dying. And they need to figure a way of humanity surviving, be that in the stars or wherever it may be. And that's kind of the crux of it. That is, in essence, the plot of the film. I, again, sorry Try to sound to like a that broken... Try to as loosely as possible. Try so not to sound like... everything that you're going to come on right now. Well, the thing is, I, I, that, let's face it again... I don't think that's anywhere close to being what this movie's about. No, 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 this no, yeah. this movie's about humanity's purpose. It's yeah. about uh, a person's purpose in life. It's about time. It's yeah. about mother nature versus humanity. It's about love, family love, love between a couple. It's about human nature. It's about logic versus emotion. It's about survival. It's about sacrifice. But None if of you that were to sell this to somebody about... for the first five minutes of this film, what does this film kind of begin as and where does it move on from? Well, this is, is the yeah, thing, though, isn't humanity it? kind of figuring out how to survive. Now, that is that is in a nutshell what it is. It obviously yeah. explains. I I didn't realise I watched um one of the featurettes today about all the science so i'm absolutely baffled because it was mostly kip thorne explaining the different um who, whose work he's a an astrophysicist who specializes in gravity waves and time warping and space time and that sort of stuff and it's based on his theories a lot of this and they actually said to him like chris nolan and him are talking and he's like okay but what would that look like and blah 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 so they wanted to know what a wormhole if it was theoretically possible, would look like. Kip Thorne wrote an equation to it, to explain what it would look like in mathematical terminology and gave that to visual effects artists who put the algorithm into the computer and then said, create, and then looked at what it created. He, they also did the same thing to uh, get the look for a black hole and how the black hole would look because it would be warping space-time around it, so it would appear 
as if uh, there were fluctuations like waves around the edge of it. The, 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 the matter around it would be getting warped. Even though there's a circular disk around it, it would actually be being, be being visible around the back and top and bottom of it. it it's an incredible thing. I, I felt about, I felt thick by the time I'd finished watching it, to be quite honest. I felt like a moron because I was like, I, I don't have understood half of what you've just explained. Um, but obviously that was the true science behind it. And Nolan being Nolan, he, instead of just being a filmmaker and going, I'm going to do a film about this, he got in one of the leading minds in the field and said, right, you tell me how to make this, but so that I'm basing it on current theory, like, and, and current working knowledge. So this film starts and I'll be fair. It takes some time to get going. I know you borrowed it off me not so long ago to watch, but it is 35 to 40 minutes in mm -hmm. before we actually find out about the main plot of the film, which mm. is go find another planet for us to move to. Um, I mean, I love it. I'm always engrossed by that because if you don't have that 35, 40 minutes of getting to know the family, getting to know the earth, getting to know the situation that humanity's in, the payoffs that come later don't mean anything. So you have to have this. And I mean, let's face it, the film is the official runtime on the Blu-ray I watched is two hours and 49 minutes long. Yeah. It is a long film. Again, yeah. I, I am always, always engrossed and I am always along for the ride every time. And I never I, take my eyes off it. I think, as you say, though, this film does, I, I think this is, you know, one of the things that the film does suffer from in, in terms of, this opening thing, it takes far too long to get to where we need to be to to, to get mm -hmm. that forward. Uh, too much plodding along on the farm and things like that. Uh, I understand the significance of part of that, but yeah, because you need to have the sequences in her room, seeing the the ghost yeah. as it is, don't you? You need to see that stuff so that later on we we can come back and see it. So I would argue that you know maybe you could cut around some of it and just keep those key sequences. Maybe you could chop it down to twenty minutes, twenty five. But yeah, and again, a little bit later on when you get the scenes with. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of him as an actor, but his his character was just a bit whingy, bit whiny, and I just didn't care. Um, so that's the thing. It's uh, that there are sections of it which are slow, slow paced. Yeah. Granted, the the stuff in space is very much different it's the stuff on earth that kind of hinders it for me at times um did you know i i didn't realize this until I this little um uh special feature but the dust storms and stuff mm -hmm. is uh, that actually was a thing in the 1930s in the great plains of america that is exactly what happened crops died which meant that very fine topsoil was available on top instead of the crops and the winds kicked up the dust storms and mm. killed thousands of people mm. um and apparently in texas in the modern day they are experiencing similar things yeah i mean it's uh that that kind of blight on crops and things like that has always been mm. common and then that's so, the no, key it's, 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 it's when the crop yeah. dies it leaves the fine soil on top which mm -hmm. then gets whipped up by the wind into the dust storm so mm -hmm. it is the the crop's death in the first place is what causes the situation for the dust storms to happen but I, I was fascinated. I didn't realize that that was that was a thing, you know, that that had actually happened. Um, now this this one for me, there's I, I, for the first time I'm watching it this time. I actually did a cry meter 
just to see how many times this film makes me cry as we go through. Oh um, we end up at five by the time we're finished. Oh dear. Um, the first one is when he leaves his daughter, when he leaves Murph at the beginning, because again, I can't, I can't handle that as a father. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you make the decision as a father between following your own dream should you be presented with the opportunity to to do that dream again when you thought you would never have the opportunity to do and you know being a parent being there for your children and it's so exciting for him and so terrifying for his daughter mm. and he doesn't you know he says to her oh you never know by the time i get back you might be as old as me wouldn't that be crazy and she just crumples because she's not excited. No, she doesn't want to wait until she's as old as her dad is now to see her no, dad yeah, again. She doesn't, yeah, this That's is fucking the thing. horrible. It's, of course she doesn't want she, that. That's it. She doesn't want to lose the time that she would have with her father because that 34 years where suddenly she becomes the same age as him is 34 years that she's not got with him. Exactly. Uh, but again, in the grand scheme of things, it's, you know, yeah, he's in some ways looking at it perhaps selfishly thinking okay yeah this is my dream this is what i wanted to do and yeah he's got that rose tinted look in his eye thinking wow i'll get to fly this and stuff like that but at the crux of it again without revealing too much a little bit later it is actually the you know the savior of the human race that he's actually doing this for yeah. so uh, i understand that that, again, that compulsion but at the same it's time this is sacrifice exactly yeah it's it's sacrificing for the greater good yeah yeah absolutely um uh, guess what happens when they end up in space? It's silent. Oh, sure. There's no noise. Sure. Because there's no noise in space. So well done, Christopher Nolan. If anyone was going to keep it up, it would be you. Thank you for making space silent. Um, uh, I love the use of the poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night by Dylan Thomas. I think that's a, a, an amazing poem anyway, and I think he uses it nicely. Um, I think he uses effectively for most of it, but I, I think there's about one use too many where I don't need it again. Um, <laughs> I've uh, I've written that there's a, a nice little homage to uh, Paul W S Anderson um, in this as well. Uh, of course, that that fantastic filmmaker responsible for the Resident Evil movies. Um, but in Event Horizon uh, that he directed, they explain a wormhole in exactly the same fashion as they do in this. Fold a piece of paper in half, poke a pen, poke a hole through it with a pen, and then push the pen through. Well, isn't that for mo- most sci-fi shows? I in this know. Day and age, pretty much. I just thought I mean. it was funny because it always reminds me of Event Horizon because that was the first film I saw explain it that way and make sense of it for me. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it's you know, as you go through, there's all the stuff that they do. So they take a trip to Miller's planet to to try that planet. And it costs them 23 years. And a crew and member. A crew member. And they gain nothing. Nope. And that's the, you know, it's the stakes. They're, 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 the stakes are so high out in, in interstellar space. We are so close to the brink of death out there in comparison to being here on Earth. Um. Uh, Coop listening to the messages when he gets back from his 23 t- year trip and his son letting him go is it, it breaks me in half again. Um, and I also like the oh, I forgot to write down the guy's name, actually, but the the guy who gets left on the station. Mm. While the, it gets left on the endurance while mm. they go down to the thing and back him when he come when they come back 
the the change in his character is fantastic. It's really subtle. Hmm. Um, well, you know, the, he spent the better part of twenty, uh, you know, twenty twenty odd, odd years on his own, exactly. Um, but it, yeah, and it's the way he sits, the way he talks. He's suddenly very, you know, his Reserved. voice is different and stuff. And you would, of course, that would happen. Um, uh, so then we go to Doctor Man's planet, who is, of course, Matt Damon. Um, and I remember around the time of this film as well, there was a joke about uh, wondering how much money Hollywood has spent trying to rescue Matt Damon over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was Private Ryan in Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> um, obviously, he was stuck on Mars in The Martian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now in Interstellar, uh, they're going to rescue him again. So Matt Damon enjoys getting stuck and rescued. Um, the obviously we get the reveal of man's true nature and that actually he has, Oh, I don't know. Would you say that he feels him? Is he arrogant or is he scared? scared. I'm not sure whether he thinks so much he's of scared. himself he's... that no, he no, has no, no. to survive. He... Or I wouldn't say he... he's arrogant. I think he's just, uh, he put himself forward for this mission to, you know, okay, uh, let's, let's hopefully find these, these good planets and things like that. Maybe thinking, you know what, I'm the one that's going to go for the, the yeah, you're right. One. Actually, I'm going to go for the easy one. I'm going to get the planet which has got the life in it. Guess what? It turns out I don't. Shit. Yeah. Well, well, I don't want to stay here. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Mm. Uh, okay, how do I do this? Okay, I'm going to rig it so that this looks like the planet that it should be. Yeah. So no, it's entirely selfish means. No, you're I right. Mean, see, what was he expecting? Like, even if he got back to Earth, what would they do? Put him in jail? But he doesn't care. He'd be back on Earth then, wouldn't yeah, he? Yeah, that's it. So... It doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, I think. Uh, yes, you're right, because the line in it is uh, there's a bit where they're looking over and he says, you know, when we set off, I never even considered that my planet wouldn't be the one. Yep. And I guess that must be the, inte- you know, that that was probably what all of them thought. They That's they true. probably all would have been of the opinion that, yeah, of course my planet's going to be the one. Or, you know, because otherwise you maybe wouldn't go. Um, the docking sequence after Matt Damon has screwed everything up and they have to dock but the whole thing's spinning mm-hmm. that entire spin docking sequence is just incredible and again you could have just cg'd it but he doesn't want to because it doesn't look as good you know i buy it far more because it's two actual models spinning around in real time trying to meet with each other there's there's a physicality to it that i can see um so then they set off Coop sets off back to Earth because he's going to go back to Earth to see his kids. Uh, the bit where he detaches Brand would be crying point number three. And then we get into the black hole. So this is where he then ends up in a series of bookcases. And obviously it transpires that the ghost that Murph, his daughter, thought she was being uh, visited by when she was young was actually her dad uh, somehow communicating with her in fifth dimensional space using gravity, because gravity is the only thing that can travel through time, uh, well, or affect time, as it were. It can't travel through time, obviously, but it, it can. you can use gravity to affect things in the past, is what's established. So he then gives messages to his daughter and realizes that uh he's maybe not going to make it back in time so he has to find a way to get some data to his daughter and does it in her 
in his watch that he left with her, which she obviously ditched and left in the house when she moved out. But he's, uh, I think it's, is it Tars, the robot? Because yeah, I haven't mentioned Tars. them yet. Case and Tars are yeah. fucking brilliant. I love those. And again, watching the special feature stuff, mostly they are a man in a suit. Mm-hmm. And he's got one arm in either of the outer legs. So he's sort of stood in the main bit, or the main bit is in front of him like a puppet. And then he's puppeteering the two arms either side. And there are times when they do CG it, but mostly they tried to use the actual model, uh, even if it was just for reference to CG over the top afterwards. Um, But yeah, he's talking to Tars, and they're realising that that they need to get this data back. And uh, it's... uh, I mean, this is where you you get high concept, ridiculously high concept, and I wouldn't be surprised if you lose people at this stage. Yeah. If if you haven't lost them already, let's be fair. I will be. Yeah. Fair. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, because to... we're now into, and this is what I've understood this time that I didn't last time. Throughout the film, we're talking about they. There is a reference to they. They have done this. They have done that. They they have given us a wormhole on the edge of Saturn that will give us access to potentially a dozen habitable planets on the other side. Um, but we don't know who they are, and they don't know why they have done this. So it's eventually decided, because he he goes back and gives himself coordinates to go and find the place to find where NASA is, so that he can go and get set on this trip in the first place. So he is the one who sends himself out into space. He then codes the stuff that his daughter needs to know into a watch, because actually they were never intending to save the planet because they couldn't. Uh, And this is Michael Caine's character being a duplicitous ass, which he isn't normally. Um, So he codes the stuff in so that she can save the Earth. Like I say, you, you, there's all this high concept stuff. It turns out that the they, because they are five dimensional beings that can move through time as if uh, in the same way that we can move along length or width or height. You know, we we operate within three dimensional space and we experience the fourth dimension in our daily lives as we pass through it. But we cannot see it as a point A to point B and look at any any structure of it. But it turns, you know, their suggestion is that the they are us. But years into, you know, thousands of years into the future, when we've evolved and we've become five-dimensional beings, and we go back to put this wormhole in place in order to save ourselves, because if we don't, our species will die out, because we weren't necessarily supposed to live on Earth uh, forever. The key, you know, some of this stuff, like with the watch. So he gives her the watch when he leaves. She throws it away and bins it. But he keys the data she needs to know into this watch because he knows that the power of... And this I hate saying this because it sounds really fucking cheesy. But the power of love will bring her back to that room, to that watch, at some point in her life. No matter how much she may think she hates him for leaving or anything else, he knows that the bond of love is so strong that she will go back to that watch. And that's an interesting thing that they discuss. And when I say it's about love and between families and between partners, because 
Anne Hathaway's character says at one point that she's being drawn across a galaxy because of love. So surely it is a quantifiable thing if I am being drawn across the galaxy to a man I've not seen in 10 years who is probably dead, but I, I, I am being drawn by this internal feeling through it. And I, I find that fascinating uh, to, to dig into and unpack because, yes, love is an emotional thing. It's not a logical thing. And this film seems to be very much on the logic side of things. So I enjoy it when he starts playing the emotional stuff into it as well. Um, so finally, Murph, Coop, uh, Matthew McConaughey, the main guy's daughter, solves the puzzle. Um, but it, it, like I say, it always obeys its own rules. They never time travel or anything. He gets back. Um, he, he gets released out of these bookcases when he's finally given them the information to save the human race. And he gets back to Earth and he's 124 years old. Um, and here is where what we see right at the beginning of the film makes sense. So the film starts with a documentary style talking heads, series of talking heads of old people talking about uh, how life was on Earth with all the dust storms and stuff and how bad it was. And we see a few of these right at the beginning of the film. And then nothing is mentioned again until we get to this third act and we see that they are talking heads that are playing on a model of Coop's farm from Earth. And it, that, that, yeah, they're, they're talking heads from, from a museum piece. But again, he throws them in at the beginning, totally out of context, so that we don't, we don't know what they are. And then finally the penny drops in the third act. Um, when he sees his daughter in a hospital bed... Uh, that's cry number five. Uh, watching himself leave her room is number four. I missed that one. Um, so, yeah, I mean, go on. Uh, before my final thoughts on it, I'll pause and let you say anything you want to. Uh, no, I mean, it's, uh, it, it, you know, the, the visuals of this film are uh, truly fantastic. Like, you and genuinely the music don't... as well. I, I adore the music. It builds and crescendos so well with the, with what's happening. So yeah, um, the visuals of this uh, film are absolutely fantastic. I'm not entirely on board with the story all the time. Um, uh, you know, it's a bit, bit l cumbersome in places. Um, this whole thing of, like you say, Anne Hathaway, like going out into space and, and trying to find this guy because of love and all that. Yeah, I just, you know, sadly, that that's the stuff that kind of escapes me. Um, I'm not too bothered by some of the interactions going up on Earth. Um, it is the visuals very much for me that that's kind of the the, the standout more so. Um, I think the performances of most of the cast are, are decent, but again, this is not the best best cast that Nolan has had to deal with. Uh, you know, unfortunately, Matthew McConaughey, he'll always be that all right, all right, all right, um, from Dazed and Confused for me. He, he, no matter how many other films he's done, he he will always be that guy. Um, he does he do a very good uh, performance in this? Yes. Better than most of the, you know, crappy uh, rom-com films that he's done with Sarah Michelle Gellar and the likes over the last, you know, 15 odd years or something. This was him finally doing something Probably one with Kate Hudson two... in there somewhere as well, I'd imagine. Exactly. Kate Hudson was the other one. That was it. Um, and, you know, after doing True Detective and trying to get himself into something a little bit grittier, he did this. And yeah, okay, it was very good. Anne Hathaway, it, it, she's all right. She just doesn't... 
again, just kind of a bit of a muddlesome kind of person. There's not much to her. Uh, Michael Caine is perhaps the only interesting character because you, there's a bit of a you know secret that he's keeping. Because uh, Jessica Chastain is is decent enough as Murph as as she grows up. Can't stand Casey Affleck. Uh, where's Bentley? Not really too bothered by either. So again, unfortunately, I think this is hindered a little bit by some of the casting uh, and some of the performances. It's not going to be on my top of my uh, my Nolan list. It is in terms of the uh, the special effects and you know when they're up in 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 space and you see them go through the black hole and and everything that involves in there and then they go through and it's the gravity well uh, and the impact of that onto the planets and things like that that all looks cool and and things like that it's just by the end of it i'm just not as bothered um I, it's gone through a bit too much it's a bit too long for me in, in too many places that's that's kind of the the problem i have don't get me wrong i think it's still a very good film but i think it could do with trimming a little bit at the middle uh, sorry, at the beginning, a little bit in the middle, probably not as much as towards the end, but there's a little bit of trim there. It's too long for me. That's that's fundamentally the crux of it. Interesting, interesting. So this, as I suspected, is, as I thought in the first place when I was thinking about this, is what I would say is the the most difficult of his films to get on board with because I don't think he plays to the mainstream in this one. I, I think he 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 explores what he wants to explores, and he's not really that interested with this one in in making sure that you're on board with it. Um, I think you either go with it or you don't. So in summation, yeah, it's long, it's slow to start. I wouldn't change a single. <clears throat> I wouldn't change a single second. After that initial sixty to forty minutes, uh, we're building, we're pushing forwards. But like I say, I am always engrossed in that early bit because it is the scene setting. It is deciding what's where we're going to go from here and i feel you need all of that in order to pay off what comes at the end i feel that when we're up there and we're we're, we are pushing towards a plot you know going to this planet going to that planet i feel it always again with him trying to i feel he's trying to get us in their position i always feel like they're slightly stabbing in the dark or to quote something from Elsa's dubious second album it feels like we're always pushing into the unknown um so i i like that it's it's because that is the edge of explanation that is the pioneer spirit that i think they're trying to get at is you know were humans designed we were designed to explore to push boundaries to learn and that's the the very crux of of what it's actually getting at i think is is that should we be doing that for the greater good or not? Um, I I agree that there is a lot of plot narrative depth. Um, I I think yeah I like the characters. I include Tars and Case in that the robots. Um, but it yeah for me it's the driving emotion underneath that he's building and building and building, and I don't realize until he hits these these emotional beats where he actually wants to pay it off. And it's only at that point when I realize how emotionally connected I am and how emotionally invested I am in the film and the characters and the scenarios. And as I say, yes, I I do think a large part of it is me being a parent, you know, me being someone who has goals, has desires, has dreams, you know, I mean, we've discussed before, maybe 15 years ago if we were doing this you know we'd both chuck in our jobs if we were single 
you know, no responsibility guys, maybe we'd chuck in our jobs and try and make a full-time thing of it and, you know, produce a YouTube video every day or whatever. But I'm a 37-year-old man with two kids and a house and a car and a business. I, I'm not in a position to do that. I think you definitely would get on with this film because of your uh, association with your kids and, and things like that. I love your kids, don't get me wrong, but it's different you being the parent than, than, than me just being their awesome uh, Uncle Flo. Yeah, the fun uncle um, is a very different yeah, exactly, role. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I, I love that role. That, that suits me down to a T. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I can understand. I suppose my, my gripe is that... Um, you know, at the end of the film, he, he finally gets to meet up with his daughter, who's now even older than he was, you know, twice his age. Well, yeah, she's on her deathbed and she's, she's on her deathbed and, and she's got twice. all of her family around and stuff like that. I think the only gripe that I have is the fact that they share maybe a minute or two minutes yep. there, like just saying Absolutely. goodbye. Not a single member of this now extended family. That That is your that isn't just like your grandma and your mother and stuff like that just there. That's your great grandfather and, and all that shit. And none of you seem to give a flying fuck about him. That really confused the hell out of me. The fact that he's got this whole massive extended family that he originated and not one of them gives him a passing smile. I thought that was very odd. I um, I see it the other way. I see that these people have never met him. They don't know who he is. They may not even know what his face looks like. Well, I get that, but you know, because if again, you think about... he comes. If you remember, when he wakes up, he finds out that the station he's on is called Cooper Station. Is like, oh, yeah. that's got a nice ring to it, and they're like, yeah, yeah, it's not named after you, mate. It's named after yeah. your daughter. He again, he like, isn't it's... a big deal. His but, uh, daughter again, is the big deal. Yeah, but still, I think you know. Uh, again, if you're going down that centric f- uh, follow of a family, you would want to know the family you've never met. You would want to know where Murph's father was because he's the crux of this whole fucking story. How did she get to where she is? Because of him. How does she push herself? Because of him. And so the fact that not one of them like gives him a passing smile or gives him a nod or a wave and says, hi, great grandfather or something, they just don't even give him a bye or bye. And it's like, no. fucking hell. And no, that no. was something that I did think was weird. That, Fair was, that was a weird... I, I, I don't see it that way, but no. I, understand. I, I understand your point. No. Um, okay, so finally, as we're running quite long on this one, um, oh, who'd have thought, given that yeah, uh, no. given that you wanted to discuss Nolan, that it might run over? Yeah. So let's see if we can do Dunkirk in fifteen minutes or less, shall we? <laughs> we'll give it a shot. So, uh, oh, I haven't looked up the cast list. My first note is cast list research, and I haven't done it, but. I know that there's the the point with this one was that they didn't really want to use any names. Um, and largely, I don't think they do. I mean, obviously, you've got the, the obvious ones. Yes, we've got Tom Hardy. Yes, Michael Caine even gets his appearance in. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, appearance. His voice gets in anyway. Um, we've got Killian, Killian Murphy. Well. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Mark, Mark Rylance is in there as thank well. Thank you. As That's the, his name. I was trying to think of his the, surname. The boat driver. Yeah. But then, I mean, largely apart from fucking fucking Harry Styles, which... That's ugh, not good. Though. Yeah, I could do without that, but... I mean, he's just not worth it. Why Why? Why him, for fuck's sake? Well, but, because... Well, this obviously, the, yeah, well, I know yeah, why yeah. Well, let's, let's just forget about it, because we so, could rant here for 10 minutes about that shit. Exactly. Oh, and Kenneth Branagh as well, actually. Oh, Ken Branagh, yeah, and, yeah, 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 um, yeah, Oh, what's his name? Uh, Jarvis from... James Darcy. Peggy Carter, thank you. James Darcy, yeah, yeah. That's it. So... The story of Dunkirk. 
And again, I'm, I'm sure I've probably said before, I, I don't consider myself a huge fan of war movies, to be honest. Having said that, I love 1917 and I love Dunkirk, so maybe I will uh, watch some other stuff. Um, like Band of Brothers, which you've been telling me. Quite. That, 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 is, that is the thing I'm getting at, yes. I, I absolutely I think I should watch that now because done the right way, I am interested in war films, actually. I think once you've done it, you'll suddenly be like... I feel like we need to talk about this again. But anyway, let's yeah, carry on with Dunkirk. Fair enough, no worries. Um, so it is the story of the men on the beach, uh, uh, a man who is requisitioned by the Navy to take his small vessel over to Dunkirk to rescue the troops, and uh, Spitfire pilots in the air on their way to Dunkirk to protect the beach. We spend an, a week with the men on the beach. We mm -hmm. spend a day with the man in the boat. Mm -hmm. And we spend an hour with the Spitfire pilots. And those three narratives are all woven together as we go through the film. And guess what? Wouldn't you know it? By the time we get to the third act, everything is in context and mm -hmm. everything makes sense and mm -hmm. starts to dovetail in beautifully. And again, I know he's not the only filmmaker that does this, but you show me another filmmaker that does this in damn near every film he does and never leaves himself a plot hole never leaves himself a point where people go, well, hang on, if that happened there, then that bit doesn't make sense. He doesn't, because he fucking knows what he's doing. And he has planned this out from the start. He is not, oh, what was the other guy called? It was Damon Lindelof and someone else who did Lost with JJ, wasn't it? And, Carlton you know, Cruise? We, maybe, Cruise? yeah, I think you might be right Cruise? there. Something like that. But, yeah, that pair of fucking morons who clearly had an idea for about two seasons of telly and then just thought well if we just keep introducing questions people will forget <laughs> them in the end and we won't have to answer them and oh, you know whereas he knows what he's doing he knows where he's going he knows where he wants to end up and he knows all the waypoints that he's going to call out as he's going along so you can write these narratives and you can tie them in together perfectly um Where is it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, this film's incredible. I think um, the 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 effects are something else, and obviously there there isn't a lot of effects work in it, as I now understand. I watched um, again. I've watched some behind the scenes stuff, and the bits where Spitfires and uh, other bombers are flying over the Moonstone, which is the the small craft that we're following across the channel. They were real. That was actually filmed in the English Channel, and they actually flew Spitfires overhead. Um, all the bits where they're rescuing people from boats and the boat is rocking about on the waves, they filmed that in the English Channel, actually having boats rocking about on the waves. Uh, again, people may think that I'm uh, like, why are you pointing this out? That obviously that's what you're going to do, isn't it? Well, no, no, not in the modern day. Lots of filmmakers would rather just sit in a cushy, cushy studio all day and film against a green screen with some basic props and then put all this in afterwards. But because he does it the way he does it, you, you totally believe what you're seeing. Because, yes, as Peter walks from the back of the boat to the front of the boat to get Cillian, you know, to, to try and get Gillian Murphy's character off the ship that he's stranded on, the, the boat is shaking like fuck from side to side because they're in the middle of a squall in the middle of the English Channel. Therefore, the actor is not having to pretend to flop left and right as he's walking down the boat, you know? 
it makes for so much better an experience. Um, apparently, the when you're looking out from the beach out to sea, because again, the beach is actually Dunkirk Beach. They went to Dunkirk, they filmed there. They had to rebuild most of the mole because it didn't exist anymore. So they rebuilt most of it back to as it was. Um, but obviously they were building it out of standard materials that they would normally build these sort of temporary structures out of. And the squalls they were getting in Dunkirk meant that every morning when they came back to shoot again, they were having to repair the mole that they'd built because half of it was washed down the beach and had been destroyed. But they reckon that if you are on that beach, uh, from the beach to a mile out to sea is real. Anything past that point is probably a little bit CG and fluffed. Hmm. But if you see a boat bobbing about, that is probably a boat bobbing about. If you see fire going off within a mile radius of that beach, it's real fire. They actually you know, lit fires in the distance rather than having to CG them in. And it's this practical approach to the effects that's incredible. I mean, again, one of the things you see is they built a gimbal for the Spitfire stuff. So they actually built special rigs for Spitfires so that they could mount IMAX cameras on the wings of a Spitfire. They then also managed to mount an IMAX camera in the pilot seat of the plane and then have it flown from the seat behind so that they could get an exact uh, pilot's eye view with the camera of what he was seeing. But again, you think about the choreography for some of this stuff. When you see these big sequences, you know, when you've got two boats of men in the water that are swimming across and you've got a Spitfire going overhead towards the climactic final sequences, you know, how, how the hell you work all of this out and, and pull it all off, I've, I've no idea. That was me leaving a point for you to come in if you want to. <laughs> I can never tell with your points. So, yeah, I mean, this, uh, as we've said, going throughout this uh, pod, we can see the progression of Nolan and this is, I think, one of those ones where as you said with, with Interstellar that was perhaps a, uh, a story, a narrative that he really wanted to tell and that he obviously hit all of the, the, the right marks and, uh, and the special effects and things like that in the same vein, I feel this is what he wanted to tell. He wanted to tell this story and he wanted to tell it the best way possible uh, with the shots that he's using, with the with the planes that he's using, everything to do with this is very real. It's very gritted. It's not okay. This is what I'm going to put loads of money behind the special effects and things like that. He's minimalized that as best possible because he wants that real practical effect. Quite. He wants a bunch of people running on the beach. He wants a bunch of people at sea. He wants a Spitfire sold on its own in the air, not surrounded by a bunch of chaos and things like that. He wants it as it as it would look, as though you were looking up. And mm. I think that's the thing. He took this as the closest, as you as you correctly said there, choreographing this entire ordeal. Mm. Must have been a huge undertaking. Um, yeah. The fact that he did it on location in in the UK and and in France is uh, you know a telling sign as well, because you can't replicate the the environment. You can't replicate. Mm the the sky and i know that sounds ridiculous but we live in this part of the world and you you see it you know in films and and, and when they shoot things all over the place we have a specific like europe in in this kind of section of europe we have a distinctive kind of appearance for uh you know for the sea for the sky for all of that kind of stuff and it made sense to film it here and that shows in spades 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the film is obviously about uh, loss, sacrifice, cost. Um, you know, personal cost, uh, uh, country cost, if you like, hopelessness, helplessness. Um, and I think in the second act, sort of around the midpoint, you, we really start to hammer home some of that stuff. Um, you've got Tom Hardy's uh, fighter pilot uh, realizing he's run out, run out. Uh, it, now is the point where he needs to turn around if he wants to go home, mm-hmm. um, if he intends to actually, you know, survive and make it back to the UK. He needs to turn around now. But there's still a plane there. There's still a bomber who could cause some real damage. So he decides to fight on knowing that he's never going to make it back to the UK. He's going to end up stuck on a Dunkirk beach and whatever that entails. Um, uh, The um, uh, Harry Styles and his gang of lads that were watching on the beach are just sat and a bloke just walks down to the beach, throws his hat off, throws his stuff off and just starts swimming out to sea. And he's just given up. He 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 he's he he just wants to die because that's preferable to the scenario he's in right now. You got um, the French kid who is trying it to looks evacuate with hopeless. them. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they are the ones, you know, they're the ones who keep going because they they constantly their story throughout this whole film is them trying to leave the 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 beach, and every single time they try, they end up back on the beach. No matter what their method of escape is this time, they always end up back on that damn beach. They just can't escape. And that is what fosters the hopelessness. Because, you know, we just can't, we can't get out of here. We've, we're trying everything we can and we are constantly getting sent back again. Um, there's a bit where they are, I think it's Kenneth Branagh and James Darcy's character talking. Uh, and one of them says, oh, the tide's turned. And he says, how do you know? And he says, oh, the, the body's washed back in. And, you know, again, that just the bodies of, of those dead men washing back up on the beach afterwards, how much that would drain you. The fact that you've got the the, the character, of you know, Brown's character refusing to leave. Like, yep. oh, OK, it's your turn to go. No, not until these men are gone will I leave. Um, and again, it's 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 that unity, that that show of unity, uh, brotherhood. That, that was going on in that era. Um, again, you know, a similar period that this was released, The Darkest Hour um, with, uh, with uh, Gary Oldman was, was also yeah. released as well, which is, is odd because you could actually watch this side by side. You could watch The Darkest Hour and then watch Dunkirk yeah. to understand yeah, the significance because, you know, we understand the importance of Dunkirk and, and what it meant and, and how many hundreds of thousands of soldiers and things like that, tens of thousands, were, were stuck, stranded over there. If, that, if they're done, that, that, if they're stuck there, that we may actually lose a good portion of soldiers to help us fight the war. Well, yeah, it was 4,000 men stuck on the beach, wasn't it? And he wanted, what was it, 30,000 back was the Mm -hmm. idea? Yeah. And they ended up getting nearly 300,000 back in the end. And like you say, if that had been 30,000 rather than 300, we, we may have lost the war. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's as simple as that. It's, it, this is it. It's, it's one of those instances where actually, if we'd have left them to die, we could have lost the war. But, also, if we'd left them to die, we may have lost ourselves in that war. Because, That's very true. Very you true. Know, la- allowing them to stay behind because we didn't want to use the resources or we didn't want to take the risk of trying to rescue them. That that could have actually cost us our own humanity and things yeah. like that. And so that's a very good point, actually. That's another theme through it, isn't it? Is is humanity and because there's the when they find out that the lad is French in that gang of soldiers, 
they they want to cast him aside because he's not one of them. But the main guy we've been following is like, no, I'm. He's a human. He's us. He's the same as us. He's not yeah. a baddie. Look at why, if we, why would if we, we kick want to him escape. Out? If we want to escape because of this. This is his country. How do you think he fucking wants to fit? Because yeah. the whole place is 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 overridden by the Nazis at this point. Exactly. Of course, he wants to escape. He wants to, you know, and and that's it. So yeah, it's um very poignant in so many very important places. Killian Murphy's character just trying to fathom what's what's transpired to him and just like. He's very aggr- angry and, and very aggressive. Yeah, um, scared. And, and just Again, because of scared. the situation, he's he's scared. That's it, exactly. Tom Holland being the hero. I mean, it's Tom Holland. Uh, yeah, Tom Holland. Tom, Tom Holland. Ha- Tom Holland. Sorry. <laughs> Tom Hardy. Sorry. Um, yeah. you know, be, being the hero and. And, and again, you just kind of see that scene where he, he does save the day and you just kind of go, of course he's going to do that because, you know, that's that's mm. what they did. But the thing is, is that's not that's not significant. That is replicative of exactly what transpired during the war. That's exactly mm. what some of those guys did. They did put themselves on the on the yeah. front line and go, you These know are, what, yeah, I may die it. or I might get put in a POW camp, but I'm going to save as many lives as possible. Did everything that transpires in this film actually happen at that time, at that moment? Well, probably not. There is a degree of artistic license. However, mm. they are examples, you know, there are examples discussing, as you say, those sa- levels of sacrifice and those decisions throughout the war. So he's just, you know, taking situations that did happen and just putting them in this time period for dramatic effect. And mm. yeah, I don't, I don't think he ever goes too far with it. You know that would push it into the realm of of unbelief, you know, of not no. uh, uh, of unreality, if you like, yes. of of then distancing the viewer. Yeah, um, and that's the thing. I think this is the 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 comparison of this to other, say, World War Two films. They're big and they're flashy, and there's lots of explosions and fights and things like that. There's a little bit of fighting and 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 whatnot pertained in this. However, this is not that story. This is about them getting off the beach. This is not them getting on. This isn't you know Saving Private Ryan. Them landing on the beach and then pushing yeah. forward. This is them in retreat yeah this is this is running away basically (laughs) this is us going fuck we've come over here and had a go at this and it ain't working we need to go back and rethink this yeah um Um, again the the film the performance is again very good uh for for those individuals who show the the prevalence and and the significance in places mark rylance is very very good as he's brilliant boat driver and Uh, i like his son as well peter i think that that lad's a really good actor because there's that there's the good sequence with him and Killian Murphy where to start with, he's like, no, I'm going to make him feel bad for what he's fucking done yeah. because he's done something bad. But then as it goes on more and more, he starts to see that actually I need to protect this guy from the truth yeah, because I don't want to break him in half. And obviously by the end, he has discovered the truth of what's happened. But the, the character, you know, Peter's character is very like, well, I'm not going to be the one to tell him that that's what's happened yeah. in this situation. Yeah. Um, again, yeah, just rounding out all of the the the, the smaller cast. Some people we'd never seen before. Uh, you know, you've got Harry Styles, who you know what, give him his creds, was an annoying prick, but that was also the role that he was supposed to play. <laughs> yeah, very true, very true. Um, At least they picked the then, right guy for the role. You're right. Yeah, and then he also <laughs> showed a compassionate side, which again, you know, it was was absolutely fine. I don't, uh, you know, I'm not going to go. Ooh, you know, I, I still can't. Stand the prick, and I still, I've, I've still not listened to half that stupid music. But even still, uh, the fact that they had somebody in there, and uh, no, again, this is the thing with Nolan. He wasn't afraid to go. You know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm casting a pop star in there. I'm not making a big deal of it, and neither should you. 
Yeah, and I, think I, I wonder whether he wonderful. casts Harry Styles. I really do. I don't. Because mm. I, I, what's he been in since? Nothing, no. as far as I'm aware. So I wonder whether this was the studio going, oh, well, he's hot at the minute. You're doing a film with loads of Brits in it. Chuck mm. him in. Let's see whether it does who's anything to, to the metrics. Yeah, who, and then say? when it didn't do anything to the metrics, they went, all right, he's obviously not as popular as we thought, then we'll leave it. But um, I would like to give a shout out to one uh, a cinematographer with one of the best names in film. Uh, who is Hoyt van Hoytema. And he is the uh, cinematographer on this film. Um, everything was shot in IMAX. And uh, once again, Nolan, as they did in The Dark Knight, as I believe we covered, they actually designed and helped to create the chase car that a, an IMAX camera could be mounted to to record chase sequences. Um, and in this, they helped design a very similar rig to fit on planes so that you could then fly an IMAX camera on a plane uh, to get IMAX images there. But Christopher Nolan and Hoyt Van Hoytemer, when they were doing the plane sequences, were actually in the air with the planes at the time. They weren't in the Spitfires or whatever, unless the camera had to be. Um, they were like in a little, you know, prop plane or jet that was flying along with them. Mm. So they could see what was going on. But again, there's incredible commitment there. And again, it's, it's the gimbal a... that they built to sort of do the close-up stuff of the planes, they built a hand-movable gimbal so that you could move it and rock it yourself. And you see the backstage footage, and Christopher Nolan is one of the men who is rocking that gimbal back and mm -hmm. forwards with the stunt coordinators and the other people. But this you know, is the thing, as uh, as we've said before, this is his hands-on approach. He is exactly. the auteur. He, 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 is, he wants to have every level of his films from start to end, from the practical stuff to the insignificant stuff, he wants to be able to m make sure that that is exactly as he wants it to mm. be. He's not a Michael Bay just because, ah, just put in some explosions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he thinks explosions uh, are a representation of story. Yeah, exactly. No. And and he probably sits in his trailer and watches videos of him, you know, or watches videos of, of actresses washing his car, and that's how he auditions people, apparently, because he's a piece Brilliant. of shit. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas Christopher Nolan is up in a plane and he's doing all of the little nitty gritty things that you would just go, well, why, why doesn't he put an, you know, a, a yeah. assistant director on stuff like this? Because he wants to make sure that it's right. It, again, it's the reason why people within IMAX are more than willing to, to work with him because guess what? He gets the most out of this material. He yeah. gets the most out of this equipment than anybody else does. So guess what? They've created this stuff. Well, of course they're going to help out the one guy who uses it to its fullest. Mm -hmm. Uh, did you know this is the first, uh, Dunkirk was the first one that everything was shot in IMAX? Yes, I was aware uh, of Because yeah. before that, he, uh, yeah, they only used He'd it for certain sequences. For, yeah. um, but he couldn't get it everywhere that he needed it to be able to use it all the time. Um, I mean, the last thing I want to mention on this is the music. Because um, it does something very incredible that I realized, again, as, as I was doing this watch through. It... It, it creates and builds tension fantastically, but it it seems like from moment one that we are building tension and then we just keep building tension all the way through to the end. Mm -hmm. And the music does that by sounding as if it is constantly rising in tone and pitch. Mm. And... That's impossible, obviously. You can't continuously rise in tone and pitch for an hour and 50 minutes from start to finish. So it's actually something called the shepherd tone, 
which uh, I advise anyone who's interested in music and, and that sort of stuff, go, go and have a look. I found it really interesting finding out about it. But it's something called the shepherd tone that he uses. And what that is, is you put, you have three climbing scales. So one quite high, one mid-range, one lower range. When you play those over each other, and they're all climbing at the same pitch on, at the same point, when you actually play that together, what you find is you hear the high stuff to start with, you hear, but not at the end. You hear the mid-range stuff all the way through, and you hear the low stuff not at the beginning, but yes, at the end. And it's those two, it's the high and the low, that go together to make it sound like it's constantly building in pitch, but it isn't. It's a repeating pattern. But the repeating pattern creates the illusion of a consistently rising pitch in music. And it's I've probably done a really shit way of explaining it there, so I apologize to anyone who does actually know what the shepherd tone is, um, if I've just totally butchered that. But it's fantastically interesting and explained to me exactly why I feel like I'm on the edge of my seat for the entire film. I thought that was a good stopping point. I didn't want to interject there. Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm about finished really. Um, um so if we do the sign off, do you want to do the part one, part two? I don't know whether you want because this uh, is over know. two hours now. Yeah, I know. It's fine. I, I don't see the difference. I don't see the problem. People can listen to it in two chunks if they want to. Okay, that's fine. It's just I don't see I don't the see the ones, reason to, the reason to split them, I've got to be honest, but um uh discussion. And it's not going on YouTube, so I'm not bothered. Uh, right, so three, two, one. So, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. Like I say, if you're interested, go and look that up. But that brings us to the end of the work of Christopher Nolan. So, if I said to you, "Can you choose a favorite?" Now, before you say, yes, I'd like to have a guess, <laughs> if I may. Sure, shoot. I think you're going to go Prestige. I would go Prestige, yeah. And Fair if I enough. was to say to you, I'd probably say you'd say Interstellar. Yeah, you'd be absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> you'd be absolutely right. How interesting, though, that your choice for best is the one that I consider the one that connects with me the least or that yeah. I connect with the least and, and vice versa yeah, yeah. for the other way. You know, how interesting is that 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 we've both picked the but opposite as ends we've of said before, our everybody, concurrent spectrums. As we said before, this this entire podcast and what we say and what we discuss is always subjective. Uh, exactly. We don't necessarily like the same things. We do have similar tastes and things like that. But that's what makes this whole podcast great because we discuss the things that we love about it and the things that we don't like and that's how we can do our comparisons. Here's a final question. If we included the Dark Knight trilogy, would your number one change? I think it may, actually. I, yes. I, I would have to think long and hard. And, and I, let's face it, it'd be the Dark Knight if, if it was going to it be. It would, yeah. It would be but the Dark Knight. I'm, I'm not sure. See, this is the thing. This is, this is where we have had this conversation of uh, there needs to be Batman films, but there also needs to be the Nolan auteur films. And yeah, that's what absolutely. we've discussed. The, the yeah. Batman stuff isn't necessarily that way inclined. So No, no, no not it's... always. I mean, I do think it's got his his. Because, uh, like you mentioned, it, there, there is a certain grittiness to his film, a, a certain level of dirt under the fingernails, as I like to call it, that I feel you get from his movies. And largely, I think most of that comes from the practical effect making and stuff. I mean, let's—I uh, know we're signing off, but let's um, 
I can think of in most of his films, there is one, usually at least one, very striking visual effect that stays with me. For oh, yeah. example, yeah. Dark Knight, where the Juggernaut flips over. Sure. That is an incredible practical visual effect, and it stays with me. Uh, Dunkirk, the Spitfire silently flying over the beach at the end mm. when he's run out of fuel, is a an incredible uh, image uh, to behold. Uh, Inception, again, either where, like you said, the, where she flips the world back on itself, um, the first time you see that effect is incredible, or the physical stuff with, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt running around the walls. I would argue a lot of people, you know, still have that visual in in their minds, maybe. Um, but he always, you know, there's something you take away from the visual aspect uh, with with each of his films. So yeah, I uh, so yeah, Prestige for you, Interstellar for me. And uh, let us know let what you know think your out there, guys. In the comments below. <laughs> Indeed. Well, there won't. Uh, there may not be comments for this one because, as I say, I don't think this will go on YouTube with no video to go with it. But um, yeah, thank you very much for joining us, guys. Um, we will be uh, back in two weeks with another episode. We're going to attempt to keep going during these times. Uh, we're also going to try and keep this a, a pandemic-free zone so that you can come and escape. Uh, from what's going on out there so apologies for the mentions today i shall try and drop them entirely for the next one because i don't want to keep reminding us all about what's going on i want to provide distraction uh for what's going on out there so thank you very much for joining us i have been bav i oh, know i have been and this has been screen masters <laughs>